0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, committed to helping reduce the use of fossil fuels by providing geothermal home heating and cooling solutions to homeowners across the Northeast. More information at dandelionenergy.com.
1: Today on BPR Live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, is a time for the people of Boston to have a say in their schools? When Mayor Flynn turned to an appointed school committee, he said it was about the power of unity, but has it morphed into a unification of power instead? Today, the City Council debate. If it's time to return to an elected school committee, welcome Lines and ask you about that and electing all public officials, including judges. Well, it turns out the UFC and ESPN care as little about domestic violence as the NFL. Why are they debuting a convicted domestic abuser on the same card as an alleged victim? Of domestic abuse, Sports Authority Trenny Kuznarek weighs in.
2: I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Robert Woodward joins us to talk about his latest book, Fear, Trump Inside the White House. We'll ask him about the comparisons between this era and the unraveling of the Nixon White House. That's next on Boston Public Radio.
1: You're listening to Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy. Sitting in for Marjorie Egan is the executive arts editor of WGBH. That would be Jared Bowen. Hi, Jared. It's
2: good to be with you.
1: Okay, so here is an imitation. I'm not very good at imitation. I'm going to do one, and you are going to guess who it is, okay? Yep. Hi, Jim. How are you? How did today go? I'm really sorry. Who would that be? I think that would be Marjorie That is exactly right. Late last night, that's what she said to me. She'll be back tomorrow, maybe not tomorrow, but I would say Thursday for sure. Really glad you're here, Jared.
2: Well, I hope her recovery from holiday shopping, I mean laryngitis, (laughs) is going very well. It
1: sounded real. It didn't sound like one of the dog ate my homework kind of (laughs) things. It sounded uh, legit, so Marjorie, get better uh, soon. So if Boston is the birthplace of democracy, shouldn't we be taking full advantage of our birthright? It's an issue the Boston City Council is taking up today, actually, holding a hearing on whether it's time to return to an elected school committee. Does the current system give the mayor and a selected handful of people too much power? It's an appointed system by the mayor. Would it be better if the residents of Boston actually had a direct say in their schools, or do they prove themselves to be a disaster for the decisions they made, like the ones that led to court-ordered busing? I'd argue it's not just the school committee members who should be elected it is all public officials including our judges and we're opening the lines asking you should all of these be people and their their position be put to a vote the number is 877 877- Three zero one eighty nine seventy we can start with the boston School Committee if you want to do that, but uh, far more controversial I think is the whole idea of uh, electing judges i 'm guessing by the smirk on your face <laughs> that you were in the uh, category of Marjorie Egan, former Chief Justice uh, Marshall, and others who think that electing judges is a Disaster of epic proportions.
2: And every other reasonable intellectual <laughs> person on the planet. I was, I thought you were kidding actually when you mentioned this earlier. <laughs> Thank I, you. I, I really did. That's not
1: too demeaning.
2: I, I was stunned. I, 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 I'll talk about judges for, I, I just can't even imagine. It may be because that's essentially all I've known having grown up here in Massachusetts. You know, only
1: 39 states elect some of their judges. So obviously, a this lot is some of people radical can be idea. Wrong, Jim 39 states. So, why don't you like it, by the way? Why do you not like uh, election?
2: Well, I think it's held up well for our judicial system here in Massachusetts. You rarely see any examples of malfeasance, and I can't imagine a situation under which judges would be beholden to campaigns and promises and the whims of the electorate. We want to have people on the bench who are completely independent.
1: So should we appoint presidents, too? Should we have somebody appoint the President of the United States? Because they may be subject to the whims of the voters as well. I mean, the absurdity to me, and I know I'm in... Well, maybe I'm not in in minority when it comes to states, but I'm clearly in a minority in this state. If we can trust ourselves to elect presidents and governors and senators, we can trust ourselves to decide nurse staffing ratios. We can trust ourselves to decide whether transgender public accommodation law should stand... I would say we're grown up enough to be able to decide whether Jane Doe or John Doe should be on a court, even if he or she issued a decision that we're not crazy about. I mean, and if not, it will be affected by the same biases that we have in all the other elections we do.
2: I mean, I honestly can't believe I'm hearing you say this. <laughs> Thank you for When that. you think about the impact of campaigning and campaign money and influencing in this country uh, – on the electoral system, and how you think that the judicial branch would completely be impervious to that. I, I just—I
1: didn't say it would be impervious. I said it will probably be as pervious, if that's a word, as other elected officials are. How about the school committee thing? I mean, if I, you live in Boston. Yes. And I have uh, uh, it, the notion, now obviously you do get to vote for the mayor, and the mayor does the appointment, but that's sort of an indirect, you know, backdoor kind of thing. If I had a kid in a Boston school, I would want to know that I had the ability to vote for people whose decision-making was going to affect uh, uh, my kids' education. I would bet if you were to stop – I don't even know how many people are on the Boston School Committee. I'm embarrassed by that. It's either seven or nine or something. Do you know?
2: Uh, yeah, I meant to look at it. Up exactly. Right before. I don't Neither not know either. Yeah.
1: Whatever it is. It's some odd number. Uh, uh, I would bet if you stopped 100 people in the street who have kids in a Boston public school – and said, name one member of the Boston School Committee. Forget all of them. Do you think any of them could do it? I would say, unless they know somebody personally, the answer is no. Is that good for democracy?
2: Well, I, I, I think I'm a little more open to this, the idea of electing school committee members, in part because I was reading that uh, on the current school committee, there are only two members of that committee who actually have kids in the Boston public I didn't school know system.
3: That. I do not know that. I
2: mean, th- that's not completely representative of the electorate, and you would— Think that you might want to have a bigger say in who gets to be. We're talking about this because right now the mayor, I think we failed to point out, has appoints ever since Ray Flynn uh, appoints all the members of the school committee. Uh,
1: uh, uh, Yeah. So the questions. The number is eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seven. If you narrowly want to speak to the issue before uh, Boston today at this hearing, they're not going to make a decision. They're holding a hearing on whether or not uh, we should return after whatever it is, quarter century or something, to an elected school committee. The the rhetoric, if you read the Globe story, some people, literally, their heads are ready to pop off over the the, uh, prospect of electing school committee people. If you want to talk about that narrowly, particularly if you're from a community that does elect them. I am from a community that elects school uh, committee members. and I like it that way. And if you want to speak to the larger issue about whether or not all uh, people who hold public positions, including judges... Should be elected. We'd love to hear from you, too. 877-301-8970. If one of our coworkers, could you tell us what computers are on the fritz means for us? I don't know what that, what the consequence of that is for what we're doing here. Uh, 877-301-8970. Al, I think you're in Middleborough. I'm not 100. Wherever you are, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling. Hi. How are you doing today? Excellent. Um,
4: yes, I, I am from Middleborough, and I'm actually a, I'm a local elected official
1: Ooh. in the town of
5: Middleborough.
4: Um, and I, I do believe in the electorate system, and I, I think it's generally it's the, the better system to go with. But you you have to be very careful about it turning into just a popularity contest. Yeah. And there are positions I think where appointed is better than elected. Like what? Um, say the town treasurer. Town treasurer. Okay. Do you want somebody who's actually qualified, or do you want somebody who knows everybody in town?
1: Well, you're suggesting that if you know everybody in town, that you're not. Uh, uh, you're not qualified. Those aren't mutually exclusive, are they, Al, or are they?
4: No, they're not. But but they can be.
1: Yeah, they and can that, be. That's correct. Where
4: it's, it's it's difficult. Well, what um, are you?
1: Are you a selectman? What are you?
4: Yes, I'm a selectman.
1: Okay, so can I make the same argument about you that maybe you're elected not because you're competent, even though I'm sure you are, but because you know everybody in town? Can I make the same argument about that? Absolutely. Okay, so,
4: absolutely could, and that's I, it, it's a tough one. Um, and I've dealt with people who have won elections, and maybe they're not confident, and uh, and and that gets to be very difficult.
1: Well, by uh, the way, there's election. you know, forget local elections. There are about sixty percent or more of the American people who think that about the person who's the leader of the free world right now. So, it doesn't just apply in towns like middleborough it applies on all levels of uh, election and by the way al i agree with you it's a tough i'm not saying this is a slam dunk kind of thing i'm just a believer in small d democracy across the board and you ultimately trust the voters to do the right thing if they don't fix it next time around al thanks for the call
2: yeah, I mean, just completely off mark. I also think that judges are, are kind of different creatures in that regard. Maybe a lot of people uh, agree there. I mean, they have, they have a different degree of, 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 of education and formality in these matters. There is a nominating process. There are reviews, so it's not like anyone can just be appointed to the bench. There are checks and balances here. But uh, I just can't see that. That's well, something except
1: to... wait a second. In Massachusetts, okay. <laughs> who confirms uh, judges? The most absurd, antiquated body, the Governor's the Council. Governor's council. Yeah. Name some of the Governor's Council members for me, by the way. Go ahead. Just name one.
2: I, I can only name one, but I'm not even sure she's still on the, okay, the I Council. I know who you're
1: thinking. Marilyn Devaney. Yes. Is your, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if she is or not. We all know Marilyn Devaney. Uh, I know a few others. Uh, uh, but can I tell you one of the most embarrassing stories ever? And I'm just trying to be candid. Uh, when I vote, went to vote, because they're by districts. Their districts are even bigger. No one knows who they are than Congress people's yeah. districts. A couple of elections ago, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but it is true. Uh, I didn't know who uh, anything about the governor's counselor who represented me in Cambridge. Uh, on the way into the polls, I met a young woman who happened to be the daughter of one of the candidates I was really impressed with her <laughs> who was like 17 and so what did I do I ended up voting for her father and by the way it, it turns out I did a little research after the fact should have done it before the fact he actually is a pretty competent character but that's how we uh, that's how we ensure judges the appointing process when this this constitutional aberration the governor's council the, by the way I'd be a little bit more okay if the senate Uh, The state senate, and you pretty much know who your state senator is, most of us do anyway. If that was the confirming body, it's fine. These are these people no one ever heard of. So, I mean, the notion that that's a better system than electing judges directly in Massachusetts is, to me, ridiculous. Well,
2: Thank still, you. by and large, it's been working for, for all of this time. And, and we have True. there are examples of in other states where they follow the trends for elected judges. And when it comes down to election season, they tend to be harder on crime. They issue different sentences as opposed to what they might have done earlier in their tenure. There are other influencing factors that people have noticed as they've studied the impact of having judges elected.
1: Well, you know... Uh, if I were you, uh, the example I'd use – I'm in a very charitable mood today, <laughs> well, so I'm going to help you, you on this thing, even though I don't agree with you. The best example – Marjorie and I talked about this uh, about at the time. I think it was earlier this year. maybe may have been last year. I'm not sure. A justice to the Supreme Court of Wisconsin was elected who basically – one of her major campaign themes was anti-NRA. Uh, NRA, yep. Now, uh, that's – obviously I'm not crazy about the NRA's positions on issues either. But the question that even I, who do support electing judges – thought was a reasonable one, is how can she ever hear a case that involves the NRA as a litigant and not recuse herself? She can't. And uh, I would argue she can't. And by the way, it wasn't just taking a position on the NRA. It was taking a position on a whole host of issues uh, in a campaign that will come before her. Uh, uh, and by the way, it wasn't just a legal position. It was a position it was an anti-NRA as a destroyer of democracy kind of thing. That is a problem, but I would argue that that is the uh, outlier. In any case, 877-301-8970. Where do you want to go?
2: Let's go to Tom calling from Boston. Hi, Tom. Hello, Tom.
3: Hi, how are you? Excellent. I have a different take on this. I want some offices not to be elected, starting with sheriff, Mm -hmm. register of probate, register of deeds, clerk of courts, and there might be somebody else I've forgotten about. Every time I vote and I see those people's names in the ballot – I don't know what they do. I know what the sheriff does. I know that the register of deeds has alphabetized deeds. But I don't understand why we should elect them. I think it's an opportunity for some fundraising, trader faving. And I think there, those should be, for example, the sheriff's. Favor trading, not, not trader
1: faving. I know what you mean, though. So yeah. but you're basically saying administrative jobs should not be elected. Is that where you're going with this?
3: Yeah, and I, I also think it diminishes the election. We, you know, we know who we're voting for president and governor yeah. and so forth. But when we see these people here, we want to ask, who are they and what do they do? And no one knows.
1: That's not a horrible—how uh, do you feel about judges, since you do oh, know what no, they do? Oh, I don't
3: think they should be elected. I think they should be appointed. I agree with you that the Senate is a good place to do it. Um, and um, oh, I forgot to mention that, the yeah, the uh, Governors' Council maybe should be <laughs> abolished. <laughs>
1: By the way, the only person I know, the late Brian State Senator Brian Joyce, used to file constitutional amendments almost every year to uh, uh, abolish the Governor's Council, but it never uh, went. It's preposterous. It is just... Marjorie's written some great columns, if you want to Google them, in her Boston Herald days, about how outrageous some of these hearings are. And But much more importantly, if you don't know who they are, it doesn't matter how good a the job they do, they're the vehicle for... The decision about whether or not a a candidate is, is qualified to be a judge, and if you don't know who they are, I would argue democracy is breaking down. Tom, thank you. Very much local. for the call. You moving any closer to me now or no? No, absolutely
2: issue? not. I mean, moving even further away. I'm, I'm surprised you're not moving closer to me.
1: How about Governor's Council? You haven't spoken to that yet. How do you think about it? Good? That's good?
2: Uh, good. Thank no you. No comment. I hope that, so wait a second. Let's be clear I hope here. I former Chief Justice Margaret Marshall is listening. She just drives down here in schools.
1: You. Jared is fine with the Governor's Council uh, making the final decision on judicial nominees from the Governor's Office, even though he doesn't know who any of the Governor's <laughs> Councilors are. And the one he does know, he's not sure. Nor am I, if she's still on the governor's uh, council.
2: Well, there is also an element of oh, press
1: Jared's scrutiny. To the, uh, there is? No, I'm not. Well, if there's press scrutiny and you read the paper, so obviously, you, from reading the paper, you know who the other governor's counselors are. And they are. No,
2: I'm talking about the judicial nominees. Oh, the judicial That's nominees. What
1: yeah. What's the last one? Who's the last one you read about, by the way?
2: Right. Did you want to go back to the calls, Jim? <laughs> All right. I suddenly feel like I'm coming on with laryngitis and you uh, can uh, <laughs> spend the next three hours. By the way,
1: if you think you were against judges being elected, you've got nothing on Marjorie again. She thinks it's an even dumber idea than you do. So that's well, I'm one, just being polite, I guess. It's one of the reasons we decided to uh, do it uh, uh, today. Oh, by the way, Marilyn Devaney, thank you very much to our co-workers, is still on the governor's council. So Jared was, almost, was sort of right uh, uh, about that. Patty from uh, Arlington, uh, you are first on, or next, or whatever you are, on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about electing school committees in Boston and electing officials across the board. Hi.
6: Hi. I'm active with the League of Women Voters, and we've done studies on these issues. We've got an upcoming study on uh, how our ballot questions are and aren't working. Mm -hmm. Um, In Arlington, we've just gotten rid of our town treasurer as Uh, an elected position, and our town clerk, who is a full-time employee, is currently still an elected position. Mm -hmm. So we've still got some issues to work out. But in terms of good governance, um, we all need to look at that. We can't change the governor's council without a constitutional
1: amendment. We can't. That's correct. That's right.
6: So some things we can't change. We can't get the, rid of
1: the ba- Article Forty Eight, which allows for direct democracy ballot questions. Can't get rid of that either without a constitutional amendment. So where's the legal and voters going to come out on ballot questions?
6: I'll let you know once we've done our <laughs> consensus. We all have to meet together to study these issues and look at them closely. We will come out with a good governance position on that.
1: Uh huh. What is the, the good year? governance position of legal and voters on electing judges? Do you know, or is there one?
6: To the best of my knowledge, at least in Massachusetts, we are opposed mm-hmm. to the idea of electing judges.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, and I can say in the case of our governor's council and that we elected, most of uh, the people voting really had no idea who she was. And that's the downside of electing people further down the ballot when people voters don't know who they are.
1: Yeah, Uh, Hey, uh, bring us, call us when you've made your, when the league has uh, come out on the ballot question front. We'd be very curious to hear what you decide. Thank you very much for the call.
2: But that can also be the case up and down the ballot. What do you mean? I remember from my years of covering Election Day that I would often speak to voters coming out of the box, and they didn't, they couldn't, they had just voted, presumably, you know. 90 seconds before, and they couldn't tell me often who they voted for or remember the names.
1: Well, I would argue this time, when you had a high-profile race for governor, you had a high-profile race for the United States Senate, Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Deal, a lot of the even constitutional offices, That's other than saying, the, big ones, the yeah. Galvin one, obviously, which was vicious, and you know, both in the primary and the final. Yeah, you know, Who knew who was running for treasurer or auditor or that sort of... Uh, one of my favorite stories, before we take a break, remind me the late, great Chet Curtis tells me a story that he is on the set at Channel 5 and they are, uh, it's on election night, and they're, they're, you'll understand the relevance, I hope, of this in a minute, and they're, they're bringing through people who've won elections, and everybody he recognizes, or the producer says in his ear, this is so-and-so, someone comes out on the set, and for some reason his IFB, that's the thing in your ear when you do television, where the producer or the director speaks with you, went dead or something, and he has someone sitting next to him, <laughs> and he has absolutely no idea who it is so he doesn't interview with someone who he doesn't know who has just won an office and he doesn't know what the office is, and he made it through. So there is a professional.
2: Well, that's because, of course, he was Chet Curtis.
1: He was the great Chet Curtis.
2: All right. We're asking you if it's time to return to an elected school committee, and if so, why not elect every other public official like Jim Browdy wants? The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, and we are live today from our studio right here at the Boston Public Library.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Bradley. Jared Bone is sitting in for Marjorie and who still has no voice. She's hoping Thursday will be her return date. We are live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. By the way, I was just checking the email since Marjorie ordinarily does that. A bunch of people are asking when Bob Woodward, uh, whose book Fear, Trump in the White House, when Bob Woodward joins us. He'll be with us right before 1 o'clock, and if you want to come see him, face-to-face. Come on down to the Boston Public Library. But first, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Boston School Committee. Today, the Boston City Council is holding a hearing asking if it's time to consider going back to an elected one. We're opening the lines and asking if it's time to make every public official an elected one. We're particularly focusing on judges, but if you want to talk about school committees, it's fine. we actually appear to have a judge on the line from Rhode Island. That is fabulous. Judge Miller, I believe it is. Welcome to Boston Public Radio, and thank you very much for calling. Hi
7: hi jim and jet uh thank you um
1: are you an I, elected judge
7: i'm elected judge i'm a former judge from the fair state of texas which you may have heard of we have and i'm a rhode islander <laughs> i'm a rhode islander slash bostonian who found his way to texas and uh practiced law and i was elected mm-hmm. uh we run partisan elect- elections in texas
8: mm-hmm.
7: um you must be a member of a political party Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the code, something called the Code of Judicial Conduct, which examined this problem of how do you get and, and the issue of course, as you all know, is how do you get the most qualified lawyers who can be impartial, who can be compassionate, who have the temperament to be a judge, and who are not ideological when they when they hear cases, whether they 're civil or criminal cases? How do you get those people on the bench
1: And how do you do that and how do
7: you get them on, well I don't think I don't think the approach is whether it's an elected position or should be or whether it should be appointed. I think regardless of whether it's elected or appointed, you have to have something else. What is it? Perhaps the committee I think that I think that I think that something else is a committee of both lawyers and non-lawyers who represent a spectrum from the community who actually retain or choose not to retain a judge, regardless of how he or she gets there by election or, um, or or appointment, to make sure, number one, that they're doing their job appropriately. And, um, and, and it can be elected or it can be appointed, I think, as long as you have a retention system in place.
1: You know, Judge, people who rep- I, I yes. hear you. I don't know if you're aware, but when uh, Mitt Romney was governor here, now obviously a senator-elect from Utah, uh, when Mitt Romney was here, he proposed, even though it didn't go anywhere, a, uh, I think it was every 10 years there was some sort of, not exactly as you're talking about, a, but a retention hearing and vote in the state senate, uh, 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 I believe, so that obviously it was not a lifetime tenure kind of thing necessarily. Do you, does anybody have such a system or, or is it either specific terms not- or lifetime appointments as far as you know, Judge?
7: I, I, I'm not. I'm not aware of any state that actually has a, a state legislature retention committee.
8: How about but any? I'm,
7: I'm against. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm dead against life appointments for judges. Uh-huh. I, I think that, that's just not where we want to go. And I think a retention. Um, uh, a, a committee, or whatever one wants to call it, shouldn't be every 10 years. It ought to be more like every four years. Hey, Judge, so before you go
1: time. away, can you answer a much more mysterious question? How did someone from this part not? of the country get elected to a judgeship in Texas?
7: They were fascinated by my peculiar and queer accent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's got to be more to the story, but we really appreciate your calling. Call us again, Judge Miller from... Little Compton, one of the great places in Rhode Island. That, by the way, I am, you're against that too, by the way. You have a problem with that? A retention uh, process so that there's not, it's sort of a compromise. I don't like four years. I think that's too often, but every 10 plus years or something like that?
2: Uh, well, I already believe that we have a system of checks and balances. There is judicial review. I mean, we're seeing this happen right now in Newton. As I said before— How we, many
1: judges as a result of that review have lost their jobs? don't see many
2: instances of malfeasance here in Massachusetts. Well, we don't know. So we've had to—I think we would know.
1: I don't know if we would know. There, and we,
2: how, how would we not know? If there was malfeasance in the courtroom, it would be well, if the press we would know.
1: if the press picks it up. But if they don't—but why shouldn't— Do you I believe mean, there is? So, So you think when somebody is, let's say— 40. How old is Judge Kavanaugh? Forget the merits of Judge Kavanaugh. He's 51 or whatever he is. I think Roberts was close to 50. That's uh, Justice Roberts. Uh, That essentially, once a decision has been made by whatever the process is, in this case, Senate confirmation, they should just serve till they either drop dead or till they choose to resign, 85 years old, whatever it is, that's fine with you? I think when you consider
2: the alternative and the impact of elections and money uh, also there in two thousand and ten in Iowa, this is an off example. Three judges who That's went true. out on a limb right. to vote for legalizing same sex marriage were all dumped in their f- elections after that. I mean they were trying to move this country forward were trying to keep up with the country, and they were dumped because of their views. You also see in places like Alabama and more conservative states, not only do the, the the sentencing become harsher, but they are more inclined to issue death sentences
1: okay, so are you a big fan of donald trump 's? I, and OK, I'm let's assume you weren't for monitoring argu- the president. Let, let's assume for argument's sake you are not just for purposes of this argument. I can extend the exact same argument you're making about Iowa. Whatever. The voters, according to the vast majority of Americans, made a horrible decision. I'm not speaking for myself. I'm speaking for the majority of people in polls. So does that mean we throw out the small d democratic system? Because it led to an outcome that the vast majority of Americans aren't crazy about? No, it's, it's it means you do better next time. Why compare, is it apples and oranges? You, you cannot compare Democracy didn't work, judge, according you, to a lot of people. You cannot
2: compare the president to judges, Jim. I just, a, did, I just did, actually. The, 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 I know you did, and I'm saying wrongly, because this country is founded on the electorate voting for the president. Yeah. It's electing the president. Okay, fine.
1: Let's go to Tony in Boston. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hi. 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 Uh,
3: I just had. Can you hear me?
1: I can. You said I just something, uh, and then you said, "Can you hear me?" So okay. we can hear you. Go ahead.
3: Uh, okay. Um, I I grew up in, Boston, and I remember when the school committee was elected. Yeah. And what happened was the mayor would blame the school committee for problems. The school committee would blame <laughs> the mayor, and the bus stopped nowhere. And so that's why the school committee became appointed so that the bus would stop with the mayor. Yeah. The other point I wanted to make was just listening to that judge from Rhode Island. What he was describing certainly sounded a lot like the governor's council.
1: Right. No, no, it doesn't doesn't actually. I thought it was similar The governor's council – no, what he was describing is a retention hearing. He said four years, but X number of years after you are either appointed or you're elected. Uh, Once the uh, governor's council uh, votes in favor of a judge – he or she is there for the long haul. There's no retention hearing. There's no review. There's no nothing unless, uh, you know, the the judges themselves or a prosecutor or somebody looks into them. Tony, we're, you're breaking up, by the way, on the uh, call, so thank you very much for calling, but we got to uh, let you go. Donna in Charlestown, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Donna.
9: Hi, Jim. This is Kathy Kelly's friend.
1: Oh, Donna, it's so great. Kathy Kelly was yes. the wonderful woman who was president of the Boston Teachers Union Boston and Mass State Federation of Teachers for Years, good friend of mine, and Donna's. Hi, Donna. What's up?
9: Hi. I just wanted to check in. I was on the school. I represented the BTU oh. on the school committee nominating panel. And? And it was it, it was it was interesting, and I also served as a teacher. As said, my husband um, under the appointed school committee. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had people going to jail like Paul Ellison, you had the Pixie paladinos of the world, you had all these appointed people that, you know, when God was giving out brains, they must have been standing <laughs> behind the door, because they just didn't seem to have any concept of what it was like to um, guide a school system. And when I was on the nominating panel, I'll tell you something pretty funny. So we get the applications. Nancy Lowe was the chair at the time. She's a great, great person. So you get the applications, you get them delivered, you look at them. I mean, some people had misspellings, they had lines crossed out. And a lot of people, and I understand it's an open process, but I also felt that those people really should maybe... Um, have somebody proofread this stuff before they send it. So in. where, wait, wait, but so, Donna, can, so
1: where do you end up on this, based on the fact you've been in the system? I
9: believe in a hybrid,
1: which is what
9: a combination nominated and elected. I because love that. You can, election is is a, really a popularity contest. I mean. You know, you get Pixie Paladino, the likes of her, if you remember correctly, Jim. I think we're around the same age.
1: Well, I do and, remember. Uh, I don't think I was here for that, but I know a lot about her. But wait a second. Donna, don't go ahead. I am willing to accept the compromise. Let's see. If Jared Bowen is some are elected, some are appointed. How about I that? Am,
2: I am also willing to accept the compromise. Oh,
1: Donna, you did it! Thank you <laughs> much I for a home run. Uh, make sure you mention Kathy every time you call. I love thinking about her. Thank you so much uh, for the uh, call. That's not a bad idea, by the way. That's actually quite a no, good I idea. Would arguably say. I wonder if that's going to come up at the hearing today. Maybe tomorrow we will tell you after the hearing is. Uh, Is completed. But not for judges. Uh, But not – well, so you say. But again, we can end the judge discussion by saying a mere 39 states – 39. There are 50 states. You probably know that. There are 39 – Probably uh, know that. 39 states.
2: You're the one who needs to be reminded about the different branches of government.
1: 80% of the states elect some judges, and there's not some – firestorm of protests saying there's a horrible amount of uh, bias. Because they've just given up. I'll keep campaigning, and you keep saying whatever you say there.
2: All right, up next, how could Sunday's loss to the Miami Dolphins affect the Patriots in the playoffs? Sports Authority Tony Kuznarek is here for that and more. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie, broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Join us to go over the latest headlines at the intersection of sports and society is Trini Kuznarek. Trini is an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Hello there, Trini Kuznarek.
10: Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay. I can't really hear you, but that's cool. we we'll we'll tr- hear you
1: fine. We'll turn your volume up in just Oh, is this a
10: volume thing? Is this like a it's very high error? tech.
1: How's that oh, now? Oh, there we go. Yep. By the way, Chelsea oh, I didn't even had to know help her do work. that. It's yeah. rather
10: pathetic, actually. For someone who's worked in this business for, like, ever. <laughs> well, hey, a- I can't hear anything. Try the volume knob, smarty pants. <laughs> Try the volume
2: knob. I mean, it's not even, you don't even have, have to be now. that technically savvy. No, 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 no.
10: no you don't. No, okay, no. Fine.
2: So, well, it's good that it's working because I'm not even going to start with a question. I just want you to listen to this, and then we'll get your reaction okay. on the other side.
10: Stunning. Or we're not
1: uh, by... uh, as in we're talking about sports, we're talking about the Patriots. Let's see. It might be that clip. How about that one? Miami
11: running around.
10: So I thought maybe you guys had the montage of all the reactions. Oh, we should have actually. That's a great idea. We had 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 the reactions of like Troy Brown and um, uh, Rob Nikovich, former Patriot, Tommy Curran, who's a writer for us. Uh, Michael Hawley, um, I saw today on Twitter that somebody had, like, people must have been sending in, like, I don't know how people get videos of their own reaction at the end of the game. Like, what, do you tape yourself watching the entire game just <laughs> on the off chance you have something that might make, make you, like, go viral? I don't know how it happens, but apparently there were some, like, clips as well of, like, people just devastated. Or I wonder, like... Do you watch it and then reenact it? Like, do you DVR the game? Yeah, I'm I'm going with number two. I'm suspect of those clips. But at any rate, people were devastated on Sunday. Listen, it hurts their positioning, clearly. Like, there's because the Kansas City Chiefs won in overtime against the Ravens on Sunday, this means most – I mean, unless the Chiefs totally fall apart, um, the the Patriots probably aren't going to get the number one overall seed. And right now – they but they should get the number two. They should still get a bye – And they should still be okay. They might have to go on the road to Kansas City, which is not ideal. Um, But it's not like the end of the world. Like, I love Dan Shaughnessy, but Dano, really? (laughs) A column? Is this the worst non-playoff loss in Boston sports history? What's worse? What's worse? Fourth and two in Indianapolis was pretty bad.
1: Ooh, she's pointing at me, too. Whatever Fourth that was. Fourth
10: and two in Indianapolis. And I think I don't think that was a playoff loss. I think that was a regular season, or was that a playoff loss? Maybe that's why I'm not remembering Can I so tell you
1: correctly. something? My favorite part of this was, I think I've said this to you, Trani. I, most sports I listen to are listened to on the radio, because when I was a kid, I used to have my yeah. little transistor in bed listening to the Philadelphia Phillies, my hometown team. So I'm listening to Monday Night Football last night. And you probably know that Larry Fitzgerald, who's a Hall of Fame to be uh, receiver, receiver, and uh, Tom Brady do interviews with Jim Gray. And they're generally these, I don't know how you feel about Jim, these sycophantic, pathetic interviews. Tom Brady actually lost his temper with his buddy Jim Gray last night. He did? Yeah, he didn't yell, but he was clearly aggravated which for a guy who basically never loses about? his composure, just being asked, and I wouldn't say relentlessly, but but being asked more than once about, what well, we just heard this miracle kind of thing. It was Tom Brady losing his composure, which I have never, ever heard before, especially with not only is Jim Bray, uh, Gray sycophant, but he's his buddy. I mean, they're friends kind of thing. It isn't like even an arm's length kind of relationship. Yeah, well, maybe,
10: maybe Tom great. expects him to not... Push for answers, and I'm sure there is a level of Brady feeling responsible for what, even though it came down to the final play. You could also point to the last play of the first half of the second quarter, where Tom Brady. I mean, the announcers say, if you listen to um, Scott Zolak and Bob Sochi on 98.5 The Sports Hub, which is where they're broadcast locally, Sochi says, under no like the one thing you cannot do here is take a sack. And what does Brady do? Because the time runs out. Because the time runs out, you can't kick a field goal. So what does he do? He takes a sack. He should have just thrown the ball away. And if you see, they cut to a shot of Julian Edelman, and Edelman's looking, at him like, what are you thinking? on your buddy, but that's such a boneheaded move. So I'm sure Brady feels somewhat responsible because that's the difference, right? You score those three points, and the final score, I think, was a two. I don't remember. One
1: point. One point. They one didn't even, even have to kick the extra thing. Yeah.
10: One point difference. So you still win. That, that play doesn't even matter. They have, you know. So, so I, I can see why he loses his temper, but it's like...
1: I loved it. I, he didn't lose his temper like screaming. It was just an un un-Brady-like uh, kind right. of moment. Like, do you I'm want tired to break down any of these this. plays, Jared, or do you not? Not really. Thank you very much.
2: Did you watch much.
1: the game? I was it. I was not it. <laughs> uh, happening uh, <laughs> What is wrong with you? If it makes
10: you feel any better, I was writing out Christmas cards. He
1: <laughs> was at a play or some such thing, whatever.
2: You know, lots of things have to be covered on Sundays, not just the Excuse
1: me. Now, every single... I was thinking about this. I was trying to look back at my notes. I'm actually jealous. But I forgot. (laughs) Uh, I would say we discuss Colin Kaepernick maybe every single week you were here. If not, we, occasionally we skip a week, but not many I would many say
10: weeks. at least uh, 75% of the time.
1: Okay, most objective observers who uh, are not anti-Kaepernick or not in love with his political stances, who I've read over the last couple of years, have said the guy is not really dying to play despite you know the lawsuit that's been filed about collusion and that sort of thing. The Washington Post reports that his agent says that he is, quote, ready and willing, end quote, to play for the horrible, well, horrible because they have no quarterbacks, right. Washington Redskins. And then you read the quotes from the coach whose name I don't even know.
10: Uh, Jay Gruden.
1: Great, Jay Gruden. Is he related to the other? He is. Oh, yep. uh, coming up with every pathetic excuse why the crummy quarterbacks they have are better alternatives for their team than a guy who went to the NFC Championship team game and once to Bowl. the Super Bowl. Super yeah. Bowl, Right, exactly, to the Super Bowl. So what's your take on, on this well, the Kaepernick take is thing? is
10: that Dan- Daniel Snyder is against uh, guys <clears throat> kneeling. Uh, he, he owns the Redskins. He owns the Redskins. He's the, the owner of the, of the Washington team. I shouldn't I, have said that. I, I know, I hate, I, I hate when, that. I when I say hate, it I try too. to always refer to them as I Washington. I feel bad about it. No, I agree with um, you. I mean, this is a guy who refuses to change a disgustingly racist name. This is a guy who claimed Ruben Foster off of waivers, um, a, violence, a guy probably. who for the second time in a few months was charged with domestic violence against the same woman. Um, and yet he won't even look at Colin Kaepernick. I mean, you just look at the number of, of quarterbacks that have gone down this season, and not one not one single team has even, and they say this in the Washington Post article, not even brought him in for a workout, not mm-hmm. even lip service. Like, hey, you know, he came and he wasn't, he came and worked out and he wasn't in great, good enough shape or something, anything. Nothing. They're not even looking at him. I mean, to me, this bolsters his, ca- his case for collusion. Now, some will say that Eric Smith, who's a safety and also played with him and knelt with him in San Francisco and who didn't sign until a few weeks into this regular season with Carolina, also suing the NFL for collusion is reason to say, no, 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 look at he got signed. But a safety is a different position than the quarterback. The quarterback is the face of your franchise, and so if a safety kneels – Well, okay. Sorry, it's Eric Reed, not Eric Smith. Eric Reed. Um, If a safety is okay, there might be like a little talk about it, but not a ton. But if Colin Kaepernick, who's doing Nike commercials and is outspoken about this and wearing T-shirts, that's gonna leave a black mark on a.
2: So, you know, on on any team. I mean, that's. I know, Jared. I'm with you. I hope
10: he wins. I hope he wins, and he takes the NFL for every G D penny. You know, if I'm it, with you, If I didn't have to watch the NFL, I wouldn't watch it. It's not a good product anymore. It's disgusting. I, I just, I hate it. Every time I watch it, I feel dirty. I'm just saying, I, I watch it because I have to. Is I this because of the domestic
1: violence, the concussions, everything, or everything? The,
10: everything. From Do the really? domestic, I hate it. I don't even think, I, honestly, I don't even, I don't even enjoy, like, I don't even get into the Packers anymore. Like, I have a friend who, like, is always, te- I love her to death, she's always texting me about the Packers, and she gets so emotionally involved in it. And I'm like, meh, Whatever. I don't, I just, I do not care anymore. Again, I watch on Sunday because I have to, because it's my job. But like this, in this sycophantic nature of all of us who cover it as well, like, and I get it. Our livelihoods are tied to it. The NFL is a behemoth. So in order for us to have, to be quite honest, to have eyeballs on the shows that we do, the NFL has to succeed. So we understand this need to like sort of cling to it. I, I just I can't I can't I have I've was just writing a note I said why aren't the Chargers mentioned more as a possible um, you know a real opponent to the to the Patriots and a real like. Uh, barrier to them getting to the Super Bowl and the AFC because they're a 10-3 and team. I was like full disclosure, other than a couple of plays on red zone, I haven't seen a down of Chargers football so I literally don't know why no one's thinking of. Maybe they're garbage. I don't know because I don't watch. I don't think I've watched a single Monday night football game this year that hasn't involved the Patriots. Wow.
2: Well, I guess that's a distinction for me. is you know, Somebody who doesn't follow this regularly to come in with fresh eyes and look at all of this, it's just completely incomprehensible. I understand you yeah, have maybe some teams, maybe Washington, it doesn't work but it, it, when this is league-wide I, I think you look around and you think, how, how is everybody not seeing what I'm seeing here, which is just so obvious. And you, you can't imagine that there isn't a fit for him. There isn't a team for him because he is resonating. He's got the product placement. He's got the deals. Obviously, people want to see him.
10: Yeah. And he's doing, and he's doing what everyone is always like, well, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? The guy gives millions of dollars and hours upon hours of his, own, of his time that is de- that's dedicated to lifting kids up in these communities that he's kneeling for. But that's not enough. That's not enough. I actually have a a girl that works for us. This was interesting. Uh, A girl that works for us, she's a, a, a production assistant. She's taking a class at Harvard. Um, and she had to do this weekend like uh, retreat thing, and they had to discuss. It was like conf- it was like conflict resolution or something. So they had to discuss hot button issues. Some of them were immigration, building a wall, abortion. She thought for sure abortion would be like the one that would made, make everyone fly off the handle. She said the one that got the people most fired up was Colin Kaepernick kneeling.
8: Ooh, wow. She said
10: it caused the most division. It caused people to lose lose their temper. She said all of these other issues that are in her mind like almost more important but people were so bothered by the fact or so supportive there was su- it was such division between them that that was the most tense arguments of the entire weekend
1: well since we're talking about Colin Kaepernick ad nauseum can I just add one more yeah. thing before we move on Uh, is uh, Marjorie is usually the one who is ready to have, as I use the expression vis-a-vis Jared, before have her head pop off about what's (laughs) happening in the world. I'm usually a little calmer. When I hear one of your sports colleagues, I don't mean at NBC Sports Boston. Just in general. In Boston in general. Say, you know, Colin Kaepernick, he doesn't even know what he's protesting. Who knows? It is so disingenuous and so nauseating. Let's move on. The good news is if you don't watch the NFL... (laughs) You can always watch the UFC because you can get a similar yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. You can get Greg Hart. Well, tell us what's going on in the UFC, So if you Greg
10: Hardy, of course, uh, a, a former defensive player uh, for the Cowboys, and before that I think he was also the Carolina Panthers. He, of course, is infamous for throwing a girlfriend onto uh, – You know, pushing her around and then throwing her onto a bed of semi automatic weapons Mm -hmm. and uh, pictures surfacing of it, but still being signed by the Cowboys after the domestic violence allegations against him. Uh, he is no longer in the league and now trying to resurrect some sort of career. Dana White with the UFC, you know, Southie native or Dorchester, whatever it is, open arms. That. that's right. Come, come by us. We, you know, and, uh, there is a producer I work with who makes a good point. He's like, if a guy is going to, if a domestic uh, violence, a guy who's a domestic violence perpetrator is going to resurrect his career, what better place than to get the, you know what, beat out of you by somebody else? Like, at least we can take pleasure in him getting his face kicked in and you can see how it feels. So, I, you know, I, I sort of get it, but very tone deaf, in the wake of Kareem Hunt and the wake of Reuben Foster, the first big ESPN card for the UFC, they are now going to broadcast it instead of Fox, is um, Greg Hardy, and then a woman whose name is escaping me, um, who had her orbital bone, orbital bone broken, she's a UFC fighter, by her UFC fighter boyfriend. And so she is a victim of domestic violence, and she is on the same card, on the same day, the same big event, being broadcast by ESPN. Rachel is Ostevich Greg, is her name. Rachel Ostevich. Perfect symmetry,
1: Hardy. don't you think? It yeah, really is. Yeah,
10: so we've got, you know, somebody who is beat up his girlfriend and some a girlfriend who's been beat up. It's just, to me, it's just... You know, and I know why ESPN's doing it, right? It's, you're going to get eyeballs. People are going to want to see how does Greg Hardy fare. They're not, turning in for, they're not tuning in probably for Rachel Osevich. They're tuning in to see what happens with Greg Hardy, this former NFL player, um, more mainstream crossover. Because unless you're a UFC fan, I don't, you know, other than uh, Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor, I don't know that I could name, an, you know, two more UFC fighters. It's not my, not my thing. But maybe somebody who's like me says, "Oh, I want to see what happens with Greg Hardy," and so they tune in. But it's just like we reward these guys for our own profit, and then we're up in arms about it when it happens over and over and over. But obviously, again.
1: we're not up in arms. But we're people not. wouldn't. Want, I mean, by definition, when you were saying you're disgusted with the NFL, well, the reason they allow uh, uh, things to go on as long as they do is because people don't care. I mean, despite all the rhetoric. The vast majority of people don't care. And obviously, the people who watch UFC, which is a huge audience, by huge the way. Huge audience. Huge uh, audience. It, it don't care that Greg, in fact, not only not don't care. My guess is most people are not watching Greg Hardy in the hopes, like you, that he gets his whatever kick. They're watching because sort of like it's a fascination. Sort of like Floyd Mayweather fights, right? Yeah. Like
10: people say, oh, I watch Floyd Mayweather because I want to see Floyd Mayweather, who, have, again, another, another fighter abuser, who right. has a long history of domestic violence. Um, yeah, I just I would love for someone. You know, if you're a major business owner who's listening, please tell me if you're a major business owner of a major corporation that's based here in Boston and you advertise during UFC or NFL games. Why do, you do, why do you not pull your advertising? You took the
2: words out of my mouth. I was going to ask that. If anybody has if even any, raised that.
10: If, like, why do you not pull your advertising when this stuff happens? Why do you not hold these these, these businesses accountable? Because
1: the viewers don't care is the answer to the question. I can answer for them. If the viewers cared and complained, we'd respond to them. I mean, just sort of like the NFL responds when they have no choice but to respond at the last moment when they're finally trapped like a rat kind of thing. Right. But if the public cared as much as you care... Then there'd be a reaction, but they don't. So there is no. They don't. We're talking to Trini, They care uh, if you kneel, though. Because they they care do if indeed. You kneel. That is correct.
2: Well, I know you're a runner. I'm a runner. I read with so much interest this New York Times piece about this ultra about ultramarathoning, which is just insane. You can talk about that what what runners do. I can't even comprehend this. But what we're finding in the difference in gender in ultramarathoning is fascinating.
10: Yes. So I so I actually heard this theory a long time ago that women, especially women who are in their early to mid 30s, well into their like early to mid 40s. Are better at distance running. That is your peak distance running time because your body is a hanging on. Thanks very much, uh, <laughs> science uh, is hanging on to more fat because you're in your you know your baby making years, as I use air quotations. You're, you know you that, that prime time, um, and now they're finding that they're you know. To put it into perspective, if you run the Boston Marathon, if you're an 18 to 34-year-old woman, you have to run a 3-hour and 30-minute marathon. If you're a man, you have to run a 3-hour marathon in order to qualify. So there's a 30-minute difference. But they're finding that the increase in distance, those times get shorter and shorter, and women are winning more races. And the New York Times um, featured this woman who has been winning 200-mile races. So an ultra-marathon is... not just winning, trouncing. And tr- like winning by like 10 hours, uh, men. And, and when, even when she struggles, she's coming in second, maybe only second by like an hour or something to a man. So it is interesting. And again, the, the, the science is anecdotal. They, it's not like they've done long-term studies or anything like that. Like she just may be, it may be, part of the explanation in the article is that fewer people do these races. So the ones that do, you know, even if you are a woman, you're just so much that better, better trained. So maybe if there was a larger pool to to pick from but you see it in 100 mile races as well not as often but you you do see it more in the 200 mile like ruling races and part of the reason that they give for it is that women psychologically are tougher yeah.
2: And it, at that point, it becomes all about the psych, what yes. you do psychologically to, to persevere.
10: I know. I thought, and the reason I put this story in here, because Jim does not understand why these guys are crossing Antarctica, and I was like, he's going to
1: not exa- understand why go- somebody... And I was about to bring up Antarctica. If you weren't listening last week or the week before, I asked those questions. This woman's name that they're writing about is Courtney Dowalter. Let me read the beginning of this story. She saw the p- live puppets playing on a swing set on the side of the trail. Trees and rocks turned into faces. She was on her second night without sleep, 165 miles in a 205-mile race through the mountains, pushing her body, whatever, you know, unlike that. Explain that to me.
10: I mean, again, I think people... Who see
1: puppets on a swing set <laughs> on the side of the I, trail. I Go think
10: people... Some people have this, this desire and this craving to see how far they can push their body. And it gets to a point, I mean, you know, I, I ran a 5K over the weekend and was talking to this um, girl that I run with. Her mom was there. Her mom is a tremendously talented runner. She beat all of us in the 5K except for her tremendously talented daughter. She's 60. She ran faster than all of us. And she was like, oh, I just did a 100-mile race. She's 60 years old, but, you know, she had done marathons for years, and she was like, okay, now what's next? You know, I've conquered the marathon. I was an Olympic trials-level marathoner, you know, sub-three hours over and over and over again, okay, this is easy now. Like, 26 miles for some people becomes easy at some point, at a certain point. So it's like, okay, well, what if I try a 50K? What if I try a 50 miler? Oh, okay, I kind of like it. What if? And also, I know it sounds crazy, but the 100-mile races sometimes, I don't want to say they're easier on your body, but it's different because you're running on a trail, so you're running on a softer. You're going much slower than you would if you're running, say, 26.2. And you know, if you're a really elite marathoner, you're running that, you know, five and a half, if you're a female, five and a half minute miles, but what might be a fast ultra marathon might be like nine minute miles, which is much more doable. I just think it's the, it's, I, to be quite honest, have always wanted to do an Ironman and I've always wanted to do at least a 50 mile race, maybe a hundred just to see if I could do it. Because it's like this this idea of pushing your body and seeing, like, psychologically and physically. Your cornea
2: drying out. Let me tell you something.
1: Marjorie and I, uh, I've never mentioned this in the air before. We do a three-hour show now. They wanted us to do a four-hour show. We tried it. But I started seeing live puppets on (laughs) swings on the side of the studio. And I decided maybe we should cut back to. Yeah, not really. sleeping
10: for all those days would be Or really. maybe not. you should cut sick. back on the Did you see? Well. I mean, by
1: the way, I admire her, but
10: it's, it's sick. Did you see in the article at one point she said, I took a one-minute nap? I know. That was yeah. good. Yeah, She's that was like, I great, took a one-minute nap, and it really fired me up, and I was able to finish the race. I was like, one minute? What does 60 seconds of rest do for you? But apparently it helps you win a 200-mile race.
1: When she's been up for 40 hours. Yeah. We only have Uh, a couple of seconds. Do you think this is nuts or do you not? Uh, You uh, like it too. Not completely. Yeah. I I, I don't think it's
2: completely. I don't think I, I I don't, I know my body well enough. I don't think I could ever do it, but I do understand wanting to do the next and
1: seeing how far you can take yourself.
10: Yeah. I mean, it's just, don't you have any desire to improve yourself? I do,
1: (laughs) but the problem is I generally can't stay up until 10, much less for two days. (laughs) So it's pretty tough. Don't I have any desire to improve my... Is that what she just said? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What um, do you, you say me, to that? You know. I think she's on Team Jared today. That's <laughs> what I say to that. Trini, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for Wow, wow time.
10: that's it. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, guys. See you next week.
2: Trini Cruz-Derek is an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor, also now one of my favorite people on the planet <laughs> for being on Team Jared. Up next is Boston's plastic bag ban coming just in time to save Boston Harbor. The Boston Globe's Shirley Leung joins us for that and more. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, live today from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: At noon on Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Should Senator Elizabeth Warren run for president or not? It's a question that's being debated across the pages of the Boston Globe. We'll talk to their interim editorial page editor, Shirley Young, about this and other local headlines. Then food writer Corby Comer joins us to talk about how the Trump administration is making America unhealthy again by lowering nutritional standards for school lunches.
2: I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, Bob Woodward is here to talk about his latest book, which chronicles the chaos and dysfunction inside the Trump White House. Then we get another look at the Oval Office by way of CNN's John King and how the Mueller investigation is reverberating inside the West Wing. And we wrap things up asking you if you're ready for Boston's plastic bag ban. That's all next on Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
12: From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is
1: WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. It's the second hour. You're listening to me, Jim Browdy, and Jared Bowen. Jared Bowen is sitting in because Marjorie Egan has... She She said to me last night, it's very sad.
2: Yeah, we hope she feels better. By
1: the way, she doesn't feel, uh, I said I hope she feels better. She she doesn't feel that bad, she says. She just doesn't have a voice. Okay. Or at least so, she says. So could Governor Deval Patrick's latest act of public service be the example he set for other presidential hopefuls by knowing when and how to quit? It's a question the Boston Globe raises, and one that Senator Warren, from the looks of her latest actions, is probably choosing not to heed. Joining us to take on this and the local headlines is the interim editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. That is Shirley Leung. Shirley, nice to see you. And by the way, you don't have much of a voice either.
0: I don't. I don't. I, I'm on day eight of a cold, and I lost my voice Thursday, so this is the much improved uh,
2: voice.
1: (laughs) Well, you're a real trooper. Thank you for being here, Shirley. It's good to see you.
2: Well, Shirley, we'll we'll go back to uh, Deval Patrick and and some of what's played out in the Globe's editorial pages in just a moment, but just developing this morning is that the MBTA's general manager, Luis Ramirez, is out after just 15 months. This was sort of, it was very different for the MBTA, bringing in somebody from the private sector who had no transportation experience. What can you tell us about him and this development?
0: It's been long Rumored that uh, Ramirez was uh, starting. I think in October, uh, a few of us started to hear that Ramirez might be out if uh, Charlie Baker is reelected and it uh, looks like um, uh, it's happened. Uh, you know, you know, the previous uh, general manager was also from the private sector, Brian Shortsleeve, oh, um, right. yeah. and he, was, um, he worked with Charlie Baker at General Catalyst. And,
1: and a, unlike Guterres, by the way, a really transparent guy who would answer any of your questions, be available at any opportunity, as opposed to the... Can I say heart, reclusive, Luis Gutierrez? But go ahead.
0: So, so Short Sleeve though was brought in for he he like Ramirez didn't have come from a transportation background. I don't I don't I don't believe. But Short Sleeve brought to the table fiscal management, and he was remember this was all this was right. He was brought in right after um, 2000 the 2015 storm. It's a 2014 story. 15 15, 15 right, after uh, Baker storms, took over, right, right, that crippled the T, and that's when uh, Baker put in this fiscal control board, and his priority was to fix the finances of the T. And so Short Sleeve was there. I didn't, You didn't get the sense he was going to be there for a long time, but he put it on the right track. Now, this guy, Steve so Poftak, yeah. who's, um, he was actually the interim GM after Short Sleeve, and so in many ways he's back. Um, and so it doesn't surprise... You know, Ramirez... Uh, in my sense, kept a low profile. Um, and But being the team G- GM, it's, it's a tough job. I mean, it's, there. we've had quite a few of them in, in a short time. But
1: this was a firing waiting to happen. I mean, as, as Adam Beccaro says in your piece in The Globe... This morning mentioned he had no public transit experience, goes on to say he left the job at the Texas company uh, that he worked at, Texas energy firm Global Power Equipment Group, just before the disclosures of a series of accounting errors that led to the company being delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. My sense was 15 months ago, even though the Baker administration, which has made a lot of great appointments, by the way, uh, denied it, I don't think they knew. I don't think they had done the vetting. It's hard for me to believe you'd pick somebody from the private sector who had, who was a, an executive of a company where there are, quote, accounting errors that, uh, uh, as I said, led to the company being delisted from the stock exchange. I believe we asked Governor Baker that at the time. I believe his answer was they did know about it and uh, something like that. I don't know.
0: You should ask him again when he's not on next.
1: Well, we'd actually... Governor Actually, Baker. we'd like to. He hasn't been on in a while. That's another topic for another day. <laughs> but when he is, we will we uh, we will, uh, we will uh, broach that. So who's got the inside track, uh, to use your same pun? I didn't mean well, it Well, no, they've
0: named it Steve Pottak. No, 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 I mean, or, that's, uh, that's
1: not a permanent. Is that a permanent or is uh, that another interim thing?
0: According to this, it says Steve Potack is, is, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, is yeah. succeeding Luis Ramirez as oh. general manager of the MBTA. Oh, I thought it was an interim um, thing. And um, now he's been around, uh, Pawtack, I believe. He's been on the board, and, and uh, you know, those of us in the media, I mean, you probably have had, him, had no. him on the show. No, no we haven't. No. Um, uh, well, now you will, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, he knows transportation policy inside and out. I believe he was, came from the Pioneer Institute. So, um, you know, it, it's it's. Uh, I see it almost like a Stephanie Pollack-like appointment. Mm. Um, didn't run a transit agency, but certainly has studied and written about it.
1: We're talking to Shirley Young, interim editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. Well, I said we would, we would return
2: to this, but we had the development last week that former Governor Deval Patrick announced that he would not run for president. The Boston Globe and its editorial uh, touted him for that, recognizing, as, as we said in the intro, that this might be an act of public service to know when it's not time not to run. And, and this developed even further with the editorial suggesting that Elizabeth Warren should maybe also consider not running
0: Um, Yes. So we wrote an editorial last week uh, focused largely on Patrick. But as everyone knows, there's all these people who want to run for president. And not everyone should run for president. And, um, you know, it was was our intention in that editorial to to say to Elizabeth Warren or Seth Moulton or John Kerry or Joe Biden, um, really uh, consider... Whether this is the right time uh, for you to run, um, and that, the, and this time the Democrats have to get it right. They have to put up the candidate who can beat Donald Trump.
1: But you went on to say, uh, and I'm paraphrasing. You'll correct me if I'm mischaracterizing, that her time came and went. That the time for her to run was probably the the cycle she chose not to. Uh, and then, basically, that is your was your conclusion that the time had. Why you have a look on your face like that? That is what you said. So isn't back
0: that? in two thousand fifteen, before I was came to the editorial oh, page. Oh, somebody else. Go ahead. Remember the Boston Globe did a whole, uh, the Boston Globe editorial page did a whole section on encouraging uh, Elizabeth Warren to run mm-hmm. for president. And in this, uh, you know, two thousand fifteen, just as you know the race was shaping up. You know, I don't think Hillary Clinton was the nominee or anything mm-hmm. like that, and. We felt that we we urged her to run, and um, we felt that that was her moment. And we wrote in the editorial we thought that she missed her moment in 2015, 2016. Now, that's not to say she could have another moment, right? And, and that's what uh, Joan Vanaki, the Globe columnist. Former believes. Globe columnist, Joan <laughs> Van
1: is that correct? Here's the first line of her piece. If Elizabeth Warren really wants to run for president, she should go for it and not let the fickle press undercut her mm-hmm. resolve. And by the way, if you click on fickle press, what do you get? The editorial page, editorial on uh, Elizabeth Warren, correct? So, so uh, just to be clear, we just never to
0: told clear. Elizabeth Warren not to run mm-hmm. for president in 2020. We just told her, listen, we were enthusiastic in 2015. We're not as enthusiastic now because we see some headwinds. Um, but we're, we, weren't, we weren't telling her not to run.
1: So I ask you this all the time because I love the inside thing. When you write an editorial like you wrote, which I interpreted, even though you say it wasn't that, and I respect what you say, that it wasn't You weren't the only one Don't who run. interpreted That's my that question. Did someone from Warren's uh, campaign call you and... Uh, 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 how do I put this, uh, suggests that that wasn't the best position for your editorial page to take? Did they do that?
0: Um.
1: Yes. Okay, it's not <laughs> well, Warren herself, by the way. Does she, does, does that, how does that work? for For the person out there who doesn't work for a newspaper, it is not infrequent that when an editorial like this appears that someone who works with the subject of the editorial, which they don't like, calls someone like you and says, I'm not happy.
0: Right. It is common when you write an editorial uh, that that the other side, someone who disagrees Mm -hmm. with you, may call you up and talk to you.
1: So Senator Warren call you?
0: I I don't want (laughs) to. I plead the fifth. Okay. (laughs) so I plead
1: the fifth. So I assume the answer is yes. We'll take that as a yes, actually. Go ahead, uh, Jared there.
2: And what I'm wondering about is the weight of that decision. I mean, now every, it seems like every conversation you read or every piece you read about Elizabeth Warren now ties back to... Her hometown newspaper—it's ver- almost verbatim. Her home, even her hometown newspaper, isn't supporting her. This is going to, this is going to dog her for a long time. It seems.
0: As I said, it was not our intention to tell her not to run. We just said that we are skeptical of a candidacy, and um, I think Joan Vanaki really lays out a little bit more uh, about. Um, that issue. Not that Joan, you know, Joan is her own column and and columnist and um, but she lays out that uh, Warren should listen to some of the Criticisms of her candidacy, largely tied to her uh, DNA, DNA thing, test yeah. over her Native American ancestry, and she needs to find a way to deal with that in order to uh, break through and and snatch the nomination and beat Donald Trump. But if she can't, it may be as Joan writes, uh, another Hillary Clinton email situation where can she I hold can you never get rid of that.
1: Uh, for the people back in Brighton, if Shirley switched headphones. Can you do that? If you switch to the one, take the one off if you don't mind. Thank you, uh, John, back in Brighton. We have a little technical problem there. And flip that thing in front of you. How's that? Say hello there. I think this is
2: worse.
0: No, that we'll be...
1: is excellent. No, that's. Oh, actually, you can hear it. It's okay. working beautifully. We're I talking think we to just Shirley. To turn beyond. up your volume
2: again on that
0: one. Too. Now,
1: uh, Shirley, before we move on, what did Senator Warren say to you when she called you on the phone? Do you want to share that with <laughs> us, or did I ask that question already? Or it, was off the record well, it was an off-the-record conversation. Off-the-record oh, conversation. So there was Shirley a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's, all the look on her face. that's all Thank I'll say. Thank you very much. So you uh, uh, did an editorial, you and your colleagues did an editorial talking about in this lame duck session the kinds of things that the legislature should be able to do before January. Obviously, people know that even if one member of the legislature who shows up uh, uh, objects, uh, nothing can go through. And when you tell us what you think can and should be on that list – you want them to, I mean this sincere. You know I'm obsessed with this five-month vacation yes. thing. And you do, don't mention that, do you? Or do you? I mean, I actually, what, do you
0: guys not have a position on that? I was going to say I've been on the show enough, and, <laughs> and this comes up every single time when we talk about mm-hmm. what the legislature needs to do. Um, and I actually was thinking it's maybe something we should take up. I actually don't know if we've had a position on it. I don't um, either. We might have, but it maybe it's something to bring up again.
1: But can I? There's an interesting thing. I'm actually going to propose a compromise, not that the editorial page of the Globe cares what my position is, but I will share it with you anyway. My position is they shouldn't be on a five month vacation. However, a wonderful point was brought up on the, I'm sure you read the Daily Download from Commonwealth Magazine, it's their daily thing. Right, right after the Wisconsin abomination, where the Republicans are trying to reduce the power of the incoming Democratic uh, Governor and Attorney General in a lame duck session. Uh, The point that was made in this daily download on Commonwealth Mag is that that can't happen here because the legislature is not in session. So that was sort of a plus. But the hybrid compromise, it seems to me, is they should work right up until Election Day, which would get rid of three months of their vacation and then not be in session during the lame duck period so that they can't do that kind of nefarious thing that their colleagues in Wisconsin did. So the compromises work till a week before Election Day and then come back in January. That's what I would urge you to do. But isn't it. the
0: whole point of not working before Election Day so they can run Virtually for campaign? none of them are opposed. It no, is that's a true. joke. Maybe. You know what, Jim? I've got a better idea. Yeah. Why don't you write an op-ed for the Globe?
1: Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Who do I send it to? You can send it to me. Ooh, I love <laughs> that idea. I'll be doing that. Fair enough. Well,
2: 700 words.
1: Thank you very much. I can do that. <laughs>
2: handing out orders here. Uh, let's, but let's talk about a couple of the issues that they didn't get to. I mean, this is surprising, actually, when you look at this, because some of these are extremely high-profile. Some of them very sensitive issues that the legislature didn't get to that you'd like to see them return to, um, starting with this registry, which I, I wasn't even as aware of, which seems pretty vital. Yeah.
1: This it's, Nikki's it's, Law thing? Is Nikki's right? Law, yeah, right. I it, am so with both of you. Go ahead. What yeah, is it? Yeah, it's
0: a bill to protect the state's most vulnerable citizens, um, those with intellectual development disabilities, and it's basically establishing a registry of caregivers that have had, you know, some claims of abuse against them. And it seems like a no-brainer. And it's sitting there, passed unanimously, I believe, through uh, the Senate, but it's, um, it's lingering in the House ways and means. And as we write, it's a disgrace that it, it hasn't been moved. Is there any
1: argument against... I mean, I'm completely where you and uh, Jared are. Is there any argument against this? You know, the only thing I can think about is... You know, these are
0: about. You know, maybe these aren't legal cases. You know, maybe they're just their claims. Maybe they're not suits or something. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. But but it seems like. But they this, can
1: set the criteria exactly. to determine who's on the registry and, and who's, who's not. not. That's exactly. exactly what they can. And it's so
2: important because there's an acknowledgement here that you have some workers who are moving from facility yes. to facility, and people aren't necessarily aware of what they're bringing, what what they've done in other facilities that should place them on a registry like this.
0: Right. I mean, it's kind of like sexual abuse. Claims. Exactly. You it know, is. whether it's. Exactly. Per- schools or at the
1: church. So what else uh, do you think they can and should do Um, before they uh, uh, formally return? And by the way, the reason this matters for those who don't study the legislature is once they come back in January... Everything starts all over again, the hearing process, the filing, and it's a whole rigmarole. So this is an opportunity to move things quickly.
0: There's a a consumer protection law, so-called Equifax law, to provide more uh, consumer protections for, uh, you know, after uh, consumers' data has been uh, stolen. We just had this really big breach by Marriott and before then uh, Target and Equifax um, you know, we talk about signing the Airbnb tax bill into law. Um, there's, it's, this is the, this would be the second year in the row where a year in a row in which um, the state is unable to collect um, taxes on Airbnb, um, and Airbnb wants to be taxed. I know.
1: And Baker is Baker okay with this? From yeah, what I I the so. yeah, I believe
0: so. No, no. Remember, at the end, he wanted to. He was trying to negotiate right, um, right. a deal, and he couldn't. And he couldn't make it. Now they did get one thing since this editorial. Re- what well, they do? Um, the natural gas safety bill. Uh, this was a, a late file by Governor Baker right after the Merrimack Valley disaster. And one of the things that came out of the um, NTSB report was that there needs to be um, a professional engineer, I think, reviewing um, and approving natural gas work because they cited that as one of the reasons why this gas explosion
1: the happened. Thing. Exactly. So and was that signed by uh, Governor so Baker? So
0: yesterday, I believe the leadership signaled they're going to they're going to sign this.
1: Uh, we're talking to Shirley Young from the uh, Boston uh, Globe editorial page who's had an off the record conversation with somebody <laughs> connected to somebody connected to Senator Warren but she won't
2: tell <laughs> us. Well at least you get out the fact that there was a conversation with somebody. We, we didn't know that something. earlier. Something we just don't know what earlier it was today, poor Shirley. Shirley.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wish my talk I wish about I wish... a Cheshire <laughs> cat look on somebody's <laughs> face. Oh my god. <laughs>
2: Uh, so let's move on to the Global has also editorialized against the president's public charge uh, anti-immigrant immigrant proposal. Um, take us through that and, and you know, later what he's doing here. So, so,
0: back in September, uh, the Trump administration said that um, you know they wanted to um, take another swipe at immigrants. I mean, this is really an anti-immigrant policy. Basically, they're saying that immigrants, mind you, legal immigrants, not undocumented immigrants, who receive, uh, let's say. Um, some kind of subsidized health care or food stamps that um, they would uh, they would be subject to uh, more scrutiny and um, and as a result um, this is just the fact that there could be this policy in place um, state agencies are starting to see people. Um, concerned immigrants who who are concerned they might be deported or uh, that it might affect their immigration status that they are choosing not to be on mass health choosing not to you know forego health care in the event that they might uh, affect their immigration status and and this is a really. Um, uh, you know, we had Governor Baker uh, had six state agencies write letters against this. Mayor Walsh said this is a terrible idea. Um, Explain and,
1: why, if you would, Shirley. What's their their uh, argument?
0: I mean, that that this that that if you have immigrants are critical to our economy, and if you have a whole segment of the legal immigrant population worried that they might uh, upset their status. That they might take themselves off health care. That means that 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 would lead to reduced productivity. It also means more ER visits rather than getting routine care.
1: Which may lead to more cost. If the bottom line is all you care about, you save money in the short term, you arguably lose money in the longer term. Right. And
0: ultimately, if you also, you know, if if more, I guess ultimately the taxpayers will end up probably paying Mm. more, you know, if immigrants aren't. Uh, taking care of themselves health-wise, um, and and also companies suffer if you suddenly you have a whole group of immigrants who are dropping out of the workforce uh, because of bad health or because you know for whatever reason um, because they're not uh, taking any uh, public sub- subsidies anymore.
1: And it particularly matters. I think you mentioned this in the editorial in places that have low unemployment rates. It is a huge – I mean, that's where a huge part of the workforce hole is filled.
0: Right. I think in uh, uh, Mayor Walsh's letter uh, – so so what happened was on Monday there was a deadline for comment mm-hmm. period to the federal government about this policy. And I believe in um, Mayor Walsh's letter, he said that um, this policy, if enacted – would uh, c- could produce a $500 million loss to Boston's economy annually in labor and economic activity. So it's, it's not a policy that just affects immigrants, but all of us.
2: All right, Charlie. we're speaking with the Boston Globe's Shirley Young. Uh, let's move on to Boston Harbor. Uh, and, you know, this was a success story. I remember this growing up. They clean up the harbor. They did clean it up. The testing still shows that it is uh, as clean as, it, as they tried to get it. But now we have plastics, as we're well aware. There's the pool that's floating around the ocean. The whales are turning up with plastic-filled stomachs. Uh, and we're seeing it right here in Boston Harbor.
0: Right. Uh, this is a really um, fascinating um, uh, story. or, or uh, I hadn't really read about it until we started working on an editorial about it. Uh, so the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority has cleaned up the harbor, but now they realize there are a lot of plastic. They're, the way they monitor, I guess, uh, elements in the harbor, um, they don't really have a good system to monitor plastics and pharmaceuticals and other industrial chemicals. I think there are reports out that plastic, like by you know, not not so distant future, right? There could be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Your editorial says by 2050. That is so frightening. Right. It is
1: unbelievable.
0: And so now, one of the things they're not sure. Uh, So we're very good at treating wastewater, and so they're not... So right now they're trying to get a handle on how do we monitor... Uh, these elements in the water, uh, how much would it cost? And we just urge I mean, I believe the MWRA is already on this track, but we urge them that uh, to figure this out. They can do this. They did it before, and they can do it again.
2: And because we're not just talking about plastics as we might think of it, plastic bags and, and toys and everything else that shows up that you would find unbelievable, water bottles and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, what's the range of, of materials that show up that, that we find plastic used in?
0: I mean, it's every right. It's it's everything like classic straws, everything, right? Um, but I think one thing I wanted to bring up was that I thought the pharmaceuticals part of it was really interesting yeah, because yeah. Uh, that's something we had discussed.
1: Because like, our body,
0: we thought your body uses would, up a very right, small. Right, yeah. uh, right. I thought bodies would. Uh, w- then I was like, what's the whole point of medicine if <laughs> you take it and most of it goes through your body? But apparently, when it, ex- I guess when we uh, get rid of it, our mm. body expels it. Uh, a lot of it there's i guess it's it, it doesn't it never disappears it goes into the water and we have to figure a way to get rid of a, a, our, either get rid of it i guess eliminate it from the water or f- make sure it doesn't have a, a bad a, an adverse imp- effect i guess
1: you know returning to the plastic thing for one second i was just when you were speaking a second ago i was uh, thinking of the story that about this whale remember the whale about what was it a week it or two ago story, November 20th yeah. Dead whale, the headline in the Guardian News, a dead whale with 1,000 plastic pieces in its stomach wow. found in Indo- Indonesia. You know, it's um, it, it, it's our ability to, whether it's climate, whatever it is, climate change, this plastic thing, which I think you graphically explain in your, your editorial, it's sort of like until it's too late to solve the problem, we don't do anything except, yeah. you know, raise our hands in shock and right. disgust, and then it's, you know... A dead whale with a thousand pieces of plastic in its stomach. It's just, it's unbelievable. Not
2: to mention all the plastics that are in in beauty products and and other things you don't necessarily think uh, would contain them too. It's, right. it's everywhere.
0: You know who you should have on, speaking Two. of plastics and water? What are you, like, water. producing
1: the damn show <laughs> she's, now? She's assigning your column. <laughs> okay, she's telling ahead. you who to have on. Oh, one. that's right. I did get an assignment. Okay, um, who should we have on?
0: Have you met the new um, leader of the New England Aquarium, Vicki Sproul? No. So one of her, when I, I did a column with her uh, over the summer, and one of the things that she was, um, and, and now I understand why, she really wanted to... Send a message that the oceans are in danger, and plastic is a big part of it. And after reading our, you know, that stat in the editor, now I know why she's on this campaign to make sure that um, everyone knows how harm how. Uh, marine life could be harmed um, in uh, by plastic in the ocean, and so she's on this campaign. So she wants to turn, as she calls it, the New England Aquarium to kind of a a new age or new
1: generation conservation uh, organization. Can you do me a favor, only because we're on live radio? If you can email me tonight with a list of all the guests we should have on, <laughs> we'll have a meeting of the okay, staff Governor tomorrow. Baker. Governor Baker, Governor Well, <laughs> if, if you, you can scroll. help us with that, we'd really appreciate. <laughs> but, Getting into um, it, Thank Steve Potack. Okay, fine. thanks. But
2: only send it to him after he turns <laughs> in his 700-page editorial. 700, 700 words. Word. Thank I you.
1: 700 pages—a little bit better. Maybe some of us today to want you to do
2: a 700-page editorial.
1: Surely, it's great to see you feel better and thanks hope for your voice me. comes back soon.
2: Shirley Leung is the Boston Globe's interim editorial page editor and a WGBH contributor. She joins us every week. Coming up, California passed a proposition banning caged egg-producing hens, and it's not going over easy with the egg industry. See what I did there, Jim? Yeah, you like that? Okay. Food writer Corby Cummer joins us to talk about that and more. He's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, live today from our studio at the BPL.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and uh, Jared Bowen sitting in uh, – well, we're not both sitting in. Jared is sitting in for Marjorie, you know, has no voice, but hopefully we'll have one by Thursday. So does the latest innovation in agriculture, indoor vertical farming, really stack up? Food writer, thank you very much, Jared. Food writer Corby Cummers has been investigating <laughs> if it's really the answer to climate change and world hunger that it promises to be. He joins us to talk about this, how got-chocolate-milk could be the new slogan for America's schools, sadly – and how Mario Batali loved him. His babo remains a cash cow for a guy who is a real pig. Corby Cummer is a senior editor at The Atlantic, a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy, and a BPR contributor. Hello, Corby Cummer. Hello nice there. You.
2: Great to have you here. We were just talking about chocolate milk because, well, one of the legacies of the Obama administration, really through Michelle Obama, was nutrition in schools and health. She had the garden, of course, at the White House, which I wonder what has become of that garden. Do we know what's become of that garden?
13: Well, they were very careful to put in stone benches and stone markers for the beds so that it would be very hard to pull up. It's still there.
2: Well, that's good to know. But what is in flux are school lunches. What's happening there under the Trump administration?
13: So Sonny Perdue, the Secretary of Agriculture, came in and in one of his first speeches in May of 2017, he pointed to his considerable girth and said, chocolate milk is a big reason I'm as big as I am. And then has merrily gone on to say, let's give kids chocolate milk in schools when they're really small and they don't know better than to think milk should be chocolate. So he's gone back to that. He's rolled back a lot of Obama administration um, school lunch regulations from the Healthy Hunger for Kids Act of 2010. Now, it has to be said in fairness, and my student at the tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Emily Johnson, who wrote her term paper on this, points out the Obama administration was already allowing these before Trump came in. So, School Nutrition Association, which is completely an industry-backed lobbying group, said... Our schools are having trouble finding whole wheat everything, and the kids don't like it, and it's hard to lower salt. Um, so the Obama administration was already allowing some of these rollbacks, but just this weekend, Sonny Purdue and the USDA has put them into effect and said as of next July, it's officially loosened. But let me tell you about the one that's really bad that's getting the least attention. It's sodium. It's salt. The best thing in the Healthy Hungry Free Free Kids Act was to reduce sodium. Because, as we all know, if you spend a couple weeks lowering the salt in your diet, you stop wanting it. You become tolerated to it. You don't crave salt. That's the question of what we should do with kids. Lower their expectations for salt but that they have not paid attention to this. Kids will still want salt. The industry will have no incentive to lower it, as they do when there's a federal rule. So I'm really
1: broken up about the salt rollback. But, you know, what's the rule of thumb you've told us about before? Isn't there a thing when kids don't like healthier food when it's substituted? What is it? Uh, On the seventh try, I know it's not a precise science, but after X number of tries, as long as that's the only thing they have there, they're perfectly fine, if not better, with a healthy alternative, right?
13: Right. I mean, it's anywhere, I've read anywhere from 6 to 32 Uh (laughs) for an infant, but you get the kid to like it. The real uh, thing is that the School Nutrition Association, I can't remember why, suddenly went over from supporting the Obama uh, rollbacks and higher nutrition standards to saying, Our members don't like it, and neither does industry. And so the School Nutrition Association sounds like it's really good, and it would be in favor of kids. It's in favor of industry. So they started saying, kids are throwing out food. Look at those trash bins. And everybody who studies school lunch will say they always throw out food. They throw out less and less of it as they get used to fresh fruit, as they get used to lower-salt stuff.
1: So, uh, Corby Kummer, uh, do you know this guy, Josh Balk, who is leading the crusade to uh, free chickens from uh, horrible, essentially, incarceration and these stackable, horrible kinds of things? Essentially, California passed, well, a variation of what we passed here in 2016, ed- ending these cage things for veal. What does veal come from? Uh, what is that called? A calf. A calf. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Whatever it is. I knew it came from some kind of... Uh, cow kind of thing, and, uh, but, but there's an interesting piece about how the industrial egg, here's the headline from the New Food Economy, with its price up and its image down, the industrial egg is uh, starting to crack, and it makes two points. One, that this cage-free thing, as goes California, often so goes the rest of America, because the market is so huge, but then they talk about not only is the egg industry up in arms, so to speak. Because it's going to raise costs, and they're worried about that impact. They also talk about this Hmong alternative, which sounds disgusting, <laughs> called Just Egg, which is made from plants, not chicken, that at least according to this writer, is, is, is very close to the taste of a real egg. Have you tried Just Egg or no? So
13: I have tried Just Egg, and... Josh Balk, as the piece gets around to pointing out, was um, one of the co-founders of Just Mayo, Mm -hmm. which has become, I think they've renamed themselves as Just because it's substitutions for lots of things. Hampton Creek was the original name of it. It's gotten into so much trouble for various business practices, it keeps renaming itself. And Josh Balk's uh, dog was named Hampton. So he's been involved in vegan, soy protein, pea protein, alternatives to eggs for a long time, all around animal welfare. So, Bach, I'm glad you mentioned him. He's been with the Animal Welfare Society, yeah, and he's done we'll a see. lot with animal welfare. So, um, I have tasted just egg. And? And I will say that if it's mixed in with, for example, raw cookie dough, uh, which was one of their first products, uh-huh. actually, um, you don't taste it, it's fine.
1: In other words, it tastes horrible.
13: Uh, yeah that's sort of the same thing. Well, so that's, <laughs> not,
1: that's not it says first of all what is mung bean? I don't even know what a mung bean. What
13: is yes, a mung yes, 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 you is. Yes, you is. Yes, you Thank is you. familiar with that. Uh, uh, uh. Uh,
1: bean sprouts. So oh, bean sprouts oh. are
13: often made with mung beans. It's a big staple in China. You have had them. Now I will never have bean sprouts at a uh, salad bar, and neither should you because of food safety. But you've certainly seen mung beans. They're extremely easy to grow.
1: Can I stay on this just for one second? You know, the argument that the industry makes, just like they did on the cage-free thing here, is it's not protecting our profits. It's we're protecting poorer Americans who can't afford the price increase if we don't torture these chickens. So a torture-free environment will be a prohibitively expensive purchase. What kind of pr- increase in a carton of 12 eggs are we talking about? I mean, roughly, when you go from, as I say, torturing these chickens to allowing them to at least walk around a I bit.
13: stopped memorizing it when I was involved with the launch of New Food Economy, and we did a piece at the very beginning of the California rule. But the general law is, I mean, the general rule of thumb is, if a big state like California or a federal rule enact something that – or McDonald's, which is the biggest player of of all, says its suppliers have to change this. They will find ways to lower the price differential so it isn't that high. At the beginning, California was higher.
1: There must be research as to whether or not low-income people who should have eggs in their diets – are, den- are unable to afford eggs in their diets because of the pricing. Cases. I find
13: all of those arguments on behalf of industry completely specious because Good. the fact okay. is if industry has to change, it does, and it adjusts price.
1: Well, I'm
2: wondering how much it's changing because it also a number of companies like Unilever, Kellogg, Starbucks, McDonald's, I think, have acknowledged that there has been so much pressure about – the way these hens are treated, that they have to move in that direction, too. So is it, I mean, this is kind of become, going to become the new norm, isn't it?
13: Well, McDonald's was the big player in animal welfare, especially with chickens, and they deserve full credit for that. After McDonald's specified that it would only have cage-free hens, California passed its reg. When California passed its regulation, the other states around it, Utah, uh, Washington, I can't remember, they also started changing the way they raised eggs. So, yep. Yeah. Okay, the big player though.
1: So you mentioned a uh, raw cookie dough, and I think for the 400th year in a row, or <laughs> whatever it is, the uh, CDC has told us, um, namely Americans or people living here, that we should not eat raw cookie dough because of the risk uh, of something in the egg and something in the whatever it is and flour, flour. But then they go on to say that 60 people were hospitalized. Nobody, fatal, by the way, were hospitalized in a country with 350 million people. So this is much ado about not much, isn't it? Well, you want me to say it's completely safe to no, have raw and Say whatever, flour you, want. And raw say whatever you want. And I
13: happen to be doing the Atlantic uh, food book roundup for the year right now, so I've been steeped in all kinds of books. And, and? and one And one woman who does food of the Islamic world says often when you're making a, a, a meatball mixture, which is highly spiced before you put it in the pan, just taste a little. No. And I thought, Wow, well, huh? raw meat. What, what is she doing? And she has one asterisk in one section saying, I'm not worried about eating raw meat. So you can decide Jim that you are not worried about raw cookie dough, but I would say, but I would, but you should be. Why? Because you could get sick from raw egg for sure, which is why you want just egg, or the easy alternative, buy a carton of pasteurized eggs. Those, oh, right, those are that's, very that's easy so, right. to get in the supermarket. So your what's kids can enjoy it. What's the flour
1: problem? Flour
13: has salmonella. And in the oh, Washington ooh. Post piece about the annual CDC call yeah. not to have raw cookie-do, cookie-do, cookie, do, cookie, Dough, cookie do do do. just wait a minute. The writer <laughs> said, so if an animal heeds the call of nature in the field, bacteria from the animal waste could contaminate the grain. Where else does the animal heed the call of nature? Um, I found that a you know, remarkable locution. So there it is. It from feces in the field which as you Thank might you remember caused that. tomato Huge tomato problem that was wild pigs against tomato fields. So it can be a problem because flour hasn't been treated unless it's in like uh, Ben and Jerry cookie dough. They buy treated flour. So
1: let me guess that Jared Bone has like zero percent body fat. You have never allowed (laughs) raw cookie dough to cross your lips. Is that a safe assumption? Of course
2: I do. Have you really? I make those Catherine Hepburn brownies. I do not let all of that. Oh, by the way, before
1: we continue for a second, by the way, forget Catherine Hepburn brownies. Have you, Corby, I'm (laughs) talking to you, have you ever heard? Him do his Catherine Hepburn invitation, oh. I'm afraid so, to even... It is so you. incredibly precise. And I, go ahead. Do it now. It is
2: unbelievable, but you'll have to pay for the favor...
1: You How know, much do you want? I'll give you 10 bucks right now if you do it. D- wait, 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 I, this is not cheap meat here, Jim. <laughs> uh, he's too embarrassed to do it. But you do an excellent, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, have you
2: really heard it? This yeah, thing, you
1: did it on the air. I forced you to do no, it last no, year. I oh, think yes, I you did, did it at a
2: holiday party. Oh, once, was. You were drunk. That's I, what it was. No, that's and right. I think you were drunk because I made you promise you'd never <laughs> share that. And look, here we are. With it was at a holiday One of party. my
13: first interviews in my, in my uh, mixed writing career was with Catherine
1: Hepburn. Well, can I tell you what's even better? Well, not better. Marjorie, when she was at NECN for like a week of uh, many, many years ago, did an hour with Audrey Hepburn. Oh. An hour with Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, that I am, Live right? on the air. How great is that?
13: Yeah, Catherine Hepburn was not great.
1: So, Corby Comer, <laughs> last night I'm don't, lying don't in wreck bed. The fantasy. I'm reading a story about Aero Farms. And uh, I come in this morning, I was actually intrigued. And I said to Chelsea, this is great. We should really do this story with Corby. At which point she said to me, well, actually, Corby wrote the story, so it's probably so I missed that part, by the way. You did write the story. I am totally fascinated by this. Explain what an aero farm is, and explain what the possibilities realistically are.
13: Well, thank you, but I have to quote my stepmother who, when she would enthusiastically describe a piece, and I would say, I wrote that. (laughs) She would say, I read articles, not bylines. Well, I guess that's what I did. you read articles, not not bylines. bylines. Yes, go ahead. Okay, so vertical farms are also called indoor farms. How are they different from greenhouses? They don't use sunlight. They use LEDs in various forms of light within a closed environment. They don't have to use fertilizer. They don't have to worry much about insects and lots of pests. So it's a very clean, completely controlled environment. They have many harvests a year. So in theory, this is a way to feed the billions of people who will be threatened by climate change. So it's a great idea. It's tremendously sexy to venture capitalist, fund, venture capitalist funders. And it is attracting tons of money, like one in uh, San Francisco. Plenty got $200 million only in one round of funding last year.
1: But as the writer mentioned, which happened to be you, Uh uh, uh, it requires a great deal. I'm reading from your piece. It requires a great deal of electricity to give plants the light and heat they could get for free. Outdoors. So does that not offset a huge part of the advantage of doing this Well, what this it does is
13: it makes it very hard to become profitable as an as an indoor farmer now. That's why this strange phenomenon that was one of the beginning, this, this piece took me six months, and it was co-sponsored by WGBH, NOVA, WGBH, right. WGBH yeah. let us say, which is going to post it on the WGBH site uh, later this week. I wrote it for an editor uh, who is at Neolife, which was the founders of Wired and he he got funding from nova so that 's great, so one of the things that we were first intrigued by, why is it just salad greens? Why is it dumb baby lettuce that we 're finding when you ever you read about these new newark uh, inner city farms like Arrow Farms in New Jersey that has seventy thousand seven 700,000 square feet, huge 70, huge amount, 70,000 square feet across downtown Newark. So this is a way of giving inner cities jobs, bringing employment in, bringing produce to the people. Uh, it's because they have very high profit margins. So something like kale, something like Brussels sprouts, something like potatoes – Not any point because they sell for such a low price in the first place that you might as well just grow them in dirt outside. So they're going for where the profits are. But what's this at the expense of? It's at the expense of doing research on things like wheat that are going to stop being able to be grown in plenty of regions thanks to climate change. Or high protein like your favorite new food, mung beans, mung beans. which can help feed the the populace when climate change really kicks in.
1: By the way, the photograph that accompanies your piece, which is courtesy of AeroFarms, is spectacular. By the way, when they see and why these, is it
13: spectacular? Because it looks like it's out of the future. It's it really thirty does. layers of eerily lit growing trays.
1: Do they have any of this? Is this happening here? Or is this sure? Not? It
13: is, and the Open Agriculture Initiative at MIT Ooh. is one of the world leaders in open source. Research. Why am I saying open-open? Because it's part of the name and because the main criticism in this article, I, from all the research I did about these sexy, very highly funded indoor farms is, they release none of their data. And what's happening? 60 to 90% of them are going under within a few years because they haven't had good plans, because their energy costs are really high, but they're not sharing any of their data so nobody can learn from their failures.
2: Well, I was going to ask you that. I mean, what's your sense of how much this could... Change food in uh, around the world.
13: It can and should change food growing and, and all around it, I guess the world. Is my question. And Do you think the, it will go the guy I wrote about, named Gautier at Princeton, uh, who has a vertical farming project, mostly around the economics of vertical farming. And Caleb Harper and Hildreth England here at MIT at the Open Agriculture Initiative. They're completely in favor of. Opening up your books, opening up data, and more than that, if you go online, for less than $500, you can build your own little indoor farm any place in your basement, in your closet, in your rec room, and they think this is a good thing. So you can have indoor basil and tomatoes and little things growing all through the year.
1: That's fabulous. That really is fabulous, by the way. Sort of like home brewing kind of thing. So, Corby, one of your better qualities, and you do have a few, is you uh, never miss an opportunity to advocate for decent wages and working conditions for people in the food and beverage industry. Could you tell us a little bit about what's going on within Trillium? I think most people know the brand. It's local. It's grown pretty huge, pretty fast. What's going on? What problems are they having internally? Trillium
13: doubled its workforce to 268 people when it went from – Just being, just being, a very successful local brewer and brew pub in Canton to opening in Fort Point Channel. But what they did was they took advantage of the fact that most of their employees were now serving beer and thus eligible for tips to take advantage of what I consider an antiquated, outmoded, should-go-but-hasn't-gone Tipped minimum wage. That means this tiny little minimum wage dependent on lots of tips. So suddenly workers saw their base hourly pay go from $8 to $5, like with no warning, with no explanation. The idea was many, not all of you, but many of you are going to be able to earn tips. But they rose up. Social media gave this couple, the founders of Trillium, a big drubbing, and they have now raised minimum wage to 15 to $18 an hour, and they're allowing the employees who serve beer to earn tips on top of that, some of them. It's going to lower, it's going to de- put a crimp in their plans to increase into Connecticut, North Stonington, but... I think it's a good thing, and that this just points out the problem of the tipped minimum wage.
1: Well, it also points out – I mean, is it fair to say here, even though they're saying now they're deeply concerned about the uh, livelihoods of their employees, the reason they're deeply concerned is because they got caught. Is that an is unfair They that did not communicate statement? this. Yeah.
13: They did not say, let's have a little staff seminar and talk about what you think your prospects are going to be to get tips. Let's bring in some of the tipped workers who how say much, that
1: this is great. How much is this hurting their business? Do you know?
13: Uh, it, they, it, it said that there was a drop in sales, the Globe story. It didn't, I think, say how much of a drop in the sales and a big drop in their reputation. We're talking to Corby
1: Cummer, our food guy.
2: Okay, in the category, like, as I was wondering about the Obama's garden earlier, I've also been wondering, you kind of lost track of what happened to Mario Batali. Uh, we don't need to revisit everything he did. Jim said it all in one word in his intro. He's a pig. He, I mean, he did lots of extreme, disgusting things to women. Uh, what has happened to Mario Batali? So as
13: Mario's longtime friend, which is a big caveat, I have to you? say...
4: Yeah, me. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. A uh,
13: longtime friend and fan of Mario's. What I would say is he was a sloppy, careless drunk who did unforgivable things that caused harm to women.
1: I would say they're crimes, even though they're uncharged. They are I think it's fair to say, based on the descriptions I read from the Spotted Pig and elsewhere, they're crimes that just haven't been prosecuted. Is that not a fair statement? When
13: I see the evidence that he had sex with women against their will while they were passed out, which is an allegation, yeah, that's a crime.
1: Why isn't he being prosecuted, by the way? Because there isn't evidence yet. That's by the why. way, you weren't here the other day. We were taught, When you tell us, what the, in answer to Jared's question, what the status of Battali is in uh, 2018, at the end of 2018, we were talking about apologies the other day after the pathetic apology of Kevin Hart and Lena Dunham. And we picked uh, as an example of what not to do in an apology is when you apologize for what I consider crimes, and you say let 's see what the uh, law suggests, you should not include in your apology a recipe for your cinnamon rolls. Is that it? Do you agree with that
13: Oh, it was a disaster disaster It was a disaster the way he handled his press. this kind of insouciance. This kind of boys will be boys, or why bother about it? I feel really bad about it, but try my pizza, cinnamon roll. It really which is the dumbest thing. Uh, but I think he's going to try to regain his dignity. But when I say alcoholism, I really mean that everything in this very long New York Magazine piece, which I assume is in print, it's very long and it went up Sunday. Uh, is, is a result of alcoholism. That doesn't excuse no, really does bad behavior that traumatizes women and leaves them with permanent psychological damage. There's, there's nothing that excuses Have you spoken do. to him
1: since uh, all this happened? I have all texted this. with him. And uh, when you said a second ago, you didn't say plotting a comeback, but whatever you said, something like that, what do you know that we don't know?
13: I don't, and I don't think he's plotting a comeback. I think that he has to figure out what's going to bring meaning to his own life. And I think that repentance is really important.
2: Well, he's gone to Michigan. So he's left New York. He's gone to Michigan. And be, does he, do we have the sense that he's left that industry, this, this industry that he led and abused and exploited for, for quite some time?
13: He had a longtime house in Michigan with his family. So it's like, I'm going to be with my family. And he really means it. And he's living a quiet life. Uh, he is being pushed out of his business, including right next door to us, Italy, which I look at and I think, wow, so much of the guiding spirit of Italy was Mario in this country. Um, And uh, the piece is really about the business dealings between Joe Bastianich, his longtime partner, who does not have a warm and fuzzy. Manner in the bar. Some and
1: Lydia, by the way, everybody knows Lydia.
13: Everybody knows Lydia, who is warm and gracious and that. welcoming and just terrific. But it's so. I don't know if he's going to be out of the business permanently, but I know that there will be a lot of suspicion and anger forever, and that anger is well placed.
1: Nice to see you, Corby Cummer. Nice to see you. Be well.
2: Thank you for being with us. Food writer Corby Kummer joins us every week. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic, a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. And he is a BPR contributor. Up next, Bob Woodward is here to talk about his latest book, which seems more timely than ever. It's titled Fear Inside the Trump White House. He's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
6: Jim Browdy,
1: and she's Marjorie Egan,
6: and this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston.
1: Online at wgbhnews.org.
6: Boston's local NPR.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie is still off, voiceless. Jared Bowen is sitting in. We are live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us is someone who may literally be bookending America's history of Oval Office dysfunction, starting with all the president's men and culminating, at least to date, with his latest book. It's called Fear, Trump, in the White House. Of course, I'm talking about Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Bob Woodward. Having him here today really makes you appreciate Mark Twain's adage that history doesn't repeat itself, But it often rhymes when you consider how Trump's alias now, individual one, may become as much part of the lexicon as Deep Throat. You can catch Bob tonight at 8 o'clock at the wonderful Wilbur Theater. Bob, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for being here. So I want to start with how you start the book. And, And this is a story that has been told, but I think it's worth revisiting because it reminds us of who the president is and is not as a leader, and that's, of course, Gary Cohn, his economic advisor, who uh, removes a letter from his desk. Tell us about what happened there.
12: This was an order that Trump wanted to sign, taking the United States out of a trade agreement with South Korea. But Cohen realized that if you get out of the trade agreement, you jeopardize the military relationship. We have 28,000 U.S troops in South Korea, but more importantly, you jeopardize the top secret special access program that allows the United States to detect a North Korean missile launch within seven seconds versus 15 minutes. So this is the essence of national security. And Trump had it on the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. He'd ordered that it be drafted, was ready to sign, and the only way to stop what Cohen thought was a catastrophic move was take the document. He knew it was quite likely that Trump would not remember uh, because, uh, as I learned, Trump has no to-do list. He'll, he's impulsive, let's, oh, I want this, and if it's not there, in a sense, it doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, When your book came out, and by the way, he goes on to say it as one of your sources, uh, he's got to protect the country. That was about the time that Bob Corker, outgoing Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee, said something like, the generals are what stand between us and chaos in this country. But to the cones of the world and others who think they've got to protect their country, as reassuring as their actions may be on the merits, did it ever occur to any of them that they, unelected, uh, uh, not elected to anything, were making decisions about the direction of this country in contravention to what the guy who's the president of the United States, who was elected, wanted to do, even if it was wrong-headed.
12: Yes, it's about as dicey a situation as a human being can be in. But it's an emergency, and I think uh, kind of the bottom line from my reporting for the book is uh, that we have a governing crisis in this country because of Trump. He does not deal with facts. He will take untruths and convert them to policy in all kinds of areas and does not realize kind of the foundation of uh, there's a triad, these trade agreements throughout Mm -hmm. the world uh, the military alliances like NATO, and then the special access, top-secret intelligence partnerships, which buy a degree of security in this country that people do not realize. And you get into an emergency environment, and this is this is not planned. This is my God, I have got to act. It's you see somebody's going to be run over in the street, and you run out to save them and push them away from the truck or the car, and uh, as I show in the book, a lot of these people just could not stomach what was going on, and they tried to draw the line on some issues, like Gary Cohen did with tariffs. But not on Charlottesville, I should say. That's right, but he wanted to, and... Uh, It's a stunning moment because he goes to Trump with a resignation letter after Charlottesville. Uh, He's quite upset that Trump has first said, well, it's both sides, the neo-Nazis and then the people who oppose them. And then he kind of gives a second speech, which is a hostage speech where they make him... <laughs> say this. I mean if if you had the video of it, you would say this this guy is chained to the podium in the White House to say this and then he took it all back the next day.
1: So you have Gary Cohn, who obviously doesn't think the President knows what he's doing vis-a-vis the South Korea thing. I think it was I hope I got this right because I read your book when it came out. If I got the fact wrong, you let me know. I think it's the effing moron comment from former Secretary Tillerson was after that meeting at the Pentagon, was it not where Mattis and Cohn had tried to educate the president? So he's a liar according to his lawyer. That's how it ends the book. He's an effing moron according to the former Secretary of State. He's incompetent. I guess I'm putting a word in Gary Cohn's, but that's what the behavior suggests. Is there anybody in his circle who respects him and trusts his judgment?
12: Well, there's some... Uh, Other really, than family uh, members. Uh, yeah, and, and there are a couple of supporters who uh, believe in some of this. The problem is uh, if you're going to move into a house you, and you want to change it, you want to remodel and decorate, but you have to live there, you can't burn it down. You can't say, oh, let's start from scratch. And there are some of these agreements that the president just hates so much. He says it's all B.S., and uh, the more you live in this world, which I was able to do for a year and a half, the more troubling it is. This is, This is a national emergency, but I think it's very hard for citizens in the country to sort out what's true, what's untrue, What's really going on? What's the impact? And uh, so I'm trying to go around and talk about it and uh, answer people's questions because it can really make your head hurt what's going on.
1: And other body parts, too, I would argue, after yes, two yes, years yes, of this. Yeah. Yes.
12: And it, it's, um, it's a, a situation where, because it's gone on, Trump's been in office almost two years— People have become, oh, okay, that's what Trump tweets. That's what he says. Oh, uh, I'm a tariff guy. Well, all the economists, 99 out of 100, will tell you tariffs make no sense. They are a tax on consumers in the United States. Trump has in his head that somehow if you buy something from China or Europe, that money is being lost. Well, it's not being lost. You, you've you decided to buy a different product, and uh, these trade deficits actually help the American economy. But he is convinced, and so he's built a body of policy that uh, now I think we are entering a, a period of economic danger that uh, these tariffs are hurting the automobile industry, they're hurting consumers, they're hurting the, in the steel industry. Uh, all they did, oh, gee, China's uh, paying a tariff of 25% when they import steel. So the steel companies in America raise prices 20% mm-hmm. or more. And so every, everyone is getting screwed. So to
1: speak. We're talking to Bob Woodward, whose latest is fear Trump in the White House. Well, to understand more
2: about how we get into some of these uh, these circumstances, which a lot of people think are impetuous, can you take us through some of the – just the anatomy of operations in the White House, the mood, the climate, what it's like to be there? I think Ken Burns recently pointed out that you've covered about, what, 20 percent of the presidents we've had in this country. You understand the general nature of how the White House operates. What does it feel like to work in the White House right now?
12: I I think it's terrifying. It was Meryl Streep, of all people, the actress, uh, the other day said... She's
1: overrated, by the way. I don't know (laughs) if you Yeah, according
12: to Trump. Uh, And uh, what was stunning, she said, I don't know what his 3 a.m. is like. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you imagine? Sometimes he'll get up and tweet. And no one on the staff, no one has any idea what he is uh, going to tweet and she also said she made a profound point she said if my children, her children were in danger, I'd do anything to save them well, Trump's children are being investigated by Mueller in a very, very aggressive way, it's not conclusive quite frankly at this point but a prosecutor who has the power that Mueller has can do all kinds of things, so i A lot of people say it's not on the table that Trump's going to fire Mueller, but uh, I think it, in fact, might be on the table. Really? That he'd fire Mueller? You don't think it's too
1: far into this process that...
12: Look, he has the power. And when Nixon, uh, 45 years ago, fired the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, uh, he made two mistakes. He turned over tapes... And he had another prosecutor appointed, Leon Jaworski. I suspect if Trump fired Mueller, he would not turn over evidence and he would not allow or permit the appointment of another special counsel.
1: You know, uh, Bob Woodward, you mentioned Mueller, particularly when you write about uh, Donald Trump's reaction to the appointment of Mueller. As someone, I assume, like everybody listening to the show or is here today, having read Final Days ages ago, there was Which a Which fi-
12: was about Nixon's last yes. year And There
1: was a Final Daisian feeling for me from reading that. Did you feel that, too?
12: Yes, and I quote people who were there because uh, as soon as Mueller was appointed, Trump realized, my God, I've lost control. And he was in the Oval Office, and he kind of toggled between the Oval Office and his dining room and didn't sit down and just raged. And people who were there said it had a final day's quality to it of the president under great stress. And uh, what one of the powerful things that Trump said, and they said, I'm president of the United States. This can't be happening to me. But, of course, it was.
1: You know, speaking of Nixon, one of the misconceptions, and I may have a misconception because it was a while ago, but you, better than anybody, can correct me. What a lot of people say, including Marjorie and I almost every day, we're the Republicans in the Senate who put America first and their party or their fear of Donald Trump tweeting about them second. And we often finish those sentences by saying, uh, unlike the Republicans during uh, uh, the Watergate era. But they were slow in coming along, too, at that time. Wasn't it uh, until the Supreme Court ruled on the so-called smoking gun tapes? They were pretty late to the fair as well, weren't they?
12: A a lot of them were, but uh, at at one point after Nixon resigned, Carl Bernstein and I went to visit Barry Goldwater, Mm. the Republican senator from Arizona who many people called the conscience of the Republican Party. And he let us read his personal diary. Mm. And in his diary, he talked about how he and the Republican leaders went to see Nixon just after this so-called smoking gun tape uh, was released. And Nixon said to Goldwater, well, I'm going to be impeached in the House. That's pretty inevitable, so I'll be tried in the Senate. How many votes do I have, Barry? 20. Now, the president would need 34 to stay in office. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds would take him out of office. And Goldwater, one of the most stunning moments, turned to Nixon and, and said, Mr. President, I just canvassed the Senate, and you don't have four votes. Or maybe you have, at most, four votes, and one of them is not mine. And the next day, Nixon resigned. So there, there was a lot of backbone in the old Republican Party. Uh, there's not much visible backbone right now. What do you think it would
1: take now? You saw Aaron, Orrin Hatch this morning says, "I don't care, quote, I don't care about this. He tells CNN. Kevin McCarthy, who's going to lead the Republicans post-Paul Ryan, said virtually the same thing. What does it take in your estimation
12: well, you have to have the and the Nixon tapes thousands of hours of those tapes, and it, it really uh, provided absolute proof that the President was ordering obstruction of justice, payment to keep people silent. There's one meeting where Nixon uh, ha- has this gather uh, this uh, session with John Dean, his counsel. And Dean says, gee, it's going to cost a million dollars in cash to keep people quiet. And Nixon says, oh, I know I know where we can get it. And uh, no hesitation. And in that single meeting on 12 occasions, Nixon says, pay the blackmail money to these people. So you need, and uh, quite frankly, there is serious evidence out there. Mueller's investigation is serious and gives the appearance of closing in, but uh, I have not seen or do not know about this kind of evidence that would end a presidency. Now, there may be one in the last page of my book, uh, President Trump and his lawyer, John, John Dowd Dow. reflect on where they are, and they say uh, it's quite possible they've been played for suckers by Mueller because they gave uh, witness testimony in 37 cases from people in the White House and a million pages of documents, and Mueller may have something. And I think that's uh, quite true. It points in that direction. I've got to be clear-eyed, though. Uh, we haven't seen it yet.
1: What is uh, you, For those of them who read your book, and you should, what's the last line from John Dowd in your book where she says he didn't have the courage to uh, say to the president's face?
12: Right, but it was... Uh, now, again, this is the president's lawyer. This is not Chuck Schumer. <laughs> <laughs> this is the person who's defending him, who likes him, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to insult him uh, and say his conclusion, but th- his conclusion was quote you're an effing liar it's the voice of
1: bob woodward
2: what well, makes one wonder what, where the checks are in the White House right now for the President. We've seen all of the figures who've come in and out. Bannon, in and out. Jared Kushner, he's in or out. Uh, as you said, he's not he's, even...
12: Kushner's still there, very well, much I've there. Never been yep. balanced,
2: but we, we've heard, we know how he's treated his son-in-law and some of the disparaging comments he's made about him. Uh, of course, his chief of staff is on his way out. Uh, you wonder about Melania, who we understand is actually more of a forceful, more forceful hand than anybody probably imagined, but who 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 does the president turn to when he's raging back and forth between these rooms as you've just described? Well,
12: well, he's been asked uh, this question, and he says his most important advisor is himself. And what we can't have sight of inside Trump's mind, but all the surrounding evidence is he's experienced a self-validation that none of us do in our work. He decided to run for president. Everyone said, this is crazy. He can't possibly win. He can't even possibly get the nomination. And so he did it. So when anything comes up, he, look, I'm right. You're wrong. And this uh, self-validation, I think, contributes to his isolation. Uh, Your point about who can come in and say... You know, you can't do that. And Tillerson now has gone public and saying, I kept, Trump kept saying, I wanna do these things that Tillerson knew were illegal. And I have examples in the book where they couldn't stop him, like setting up this relationship with Saudi Arabia. Tillerson was in there saying, hey, look, uh, I was head of Exxon, and I know about dealing with the Saudis, and you can't trust them, and don't do this. The Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, the CIA were all saying the same thing. Jared Kushner set it up, got Trump to agree, and it, it, it's absolutely stunning where they turned and and they failed to look at the CIA files, which show that the Saudis are ruthless. They killed people. Thirty years ago, I wrote about how the Saudis were trying to kill somebody in Beirut with a car bomb, and they killed 80 innocent people. And so they they will do this, and if they'd listened to the naysayers, the ones who were saying, slow this down, we can do it next year, they, they did it the first months of Trump's presidency. And look at what... They bought into a uh, Saudi murder machine uh, run by the crown prince, who effectively is the leader of Saudi Arabia.
1: And then, according to the New York Times, after the murder being advised by Jared Kushner as to how to calm the waters. You know, when you mentioned John Dean before, uh, uh, I'm glad you did. Every time I turn on CNN, which is every night, and I see your former partner, Carl Bernstein, that's one thing. When you turn on CNN and you see John Dean giving commentary on the legality or illegality of the actions of this president. Is that like an out-of-body experience for you?
12: I've often thought my last book is going to be entitled Some People Never Go Away. (laughs) (laughs) And and Dean would be the first chapter. (laughs) Who Uh,
1: who else would be in that book, Bob Woodward? Well,
12: well, there there are lots of people. Some people think I'd be in it. Uh, uh, Look, it's... um, uh, John Dean has a perspective. He was there, he did it, he turned on Nixon. John Dean was such an important witness against Nixon because he provided something that the tapes could not provide, mm-hmm. and that is motive because Dean said, "My motive was corrupt. President Nixon's motive was corrupt." And that's why uh, he did all of these things. So in the uh, the the big question is there a dean-like witness in the Mueller investigation? Some people think it might be uh, McGahn, the former White House counsel. Council, yeah. That's possible.
1: Who's uh, interviewed with Mueller quite a few times. Yes, many mm-hmm. times.
12: I mean, it, it's amazing where uh, Mueller, uh, it, what did he interview? Uh, Michael Flynn, the uh, resigned uh, National, National Security, Security Advisor. Advisor, nineteen times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to interview people nineteen times because, but that's hard. It takes a lot of effort.
1: Can I ask you one last question about Donald Trump? I know you had interviewed him in the past and met him in the past. He wouldn't be interviewed for this book, even though he trashed it as fake news, of course, after the fact. There was a piece in Stat, which is the Health and Science offshoot of the Boston Globe, does terrific work quoting a lot of uh, psychiatrists and others, not just the ones who wrote that book 27 Shrink's Look at Trump or whatever it was called, who suggest that if you observe him as a younger man and now, that there's a dramatic difference in his cognitive abilities. Do you see that in him? Uh, I'm
12: not a psychiatrist. No, I know you're not. And, I know you're not. and, 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 and I'm aggressively not a psychiatrist. Okay. I think um, that reporters can try to describe behavior and the facts, and present them, and let people judge for themselves, I think we get too wound up in uh, getting out of our lane, uh, not only uh, talking about that but proposing remedies. Oh, this is what needs to be done, and uh, you know the political system's going to define uh, Trump and decide what happens to him i don 't i think Catherine graham the a great owner and publisher of the Washington Post after Nixon resigned sent Carl Bernstein and myself a letter and said beware, I want to give you some advice, beware the demon pomposity and I think there's a lot of pomposity walking around, we need to toned it down.
1: Well, you're doing pretty well in your own lane there, Bob Woodward, so stay right there. Thank you so much. The Thank book you. is fabulous, and we really appreciate your time. Thank thanks you so much. Thank you.
12: Thank you.
2: Such Thank a pleasure thanks. to have you here.
1: Bob Woodward is a
2: Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and associate editor of The Washington Post. His latest book is Fear, Trump in the White House. You can catch him tonight at 8 o'clock at The Wilbur. To learn more, go to thewilbur.com. Coming up, CNN's John King is here to go over the latest headlines coming out of D.C. He's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio and live today from our studio at the BPL.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Jared Bowen is sitting in for Marjorie Egan. We're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us on line to over the latest political headlines is CNN's chief national correspondent, John King. John is the anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays at noon, even though he's off today. And Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Hello there, John King.
11: Happy Tuesday. I am really grateful Bob Woodward would not answer that question about whether my cognitive ability.
1: (laughs) No, it wasn't you, John. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. It was (laughs) was not you. Good to talk to you, John. Where are you, by the way?
11: I'm in Atlanta. I came down here. My production team is split between D.C. and Atlanta, and so I came to Atlanta today because we're having a little holiday lunch, and so oh. I wanted to come down to say
1: thank you to those guys. Fabulous. Well, thanks for calling in. We really appreciate it. Well, John King, we'll go straight to the heart of the
2: matter with everything that's coming out last week. People wondering how much the Mueller investigation is closing in on the president. What's the sense that you have, especially as the, there's impeach? we'll talk more about this a little bit later, too, but more impeachment talk is starting to be bandied about.
11: You do hear that word, and uh, it's a challenge for both sides. It's a challenge for the president as he brings in a new White House counsel as he deals with uh, a Mueller investigation or the Southern District of New York, which is actually closing in more closely to the president, accusing him in court filings of committing felony campaign uh, finance violations. So you have a bunker mentality at the White House, without a doubt, Uh, heading into a period where the President is on edge which affects everything from his legal posture and his Twitter feed uh, to what we just saw play out in the White House, this remarkable showdown over whether there'll be a government shutdown with Chuck and Nancy as he likes to call them. Uh, There's no question. The challenge for the President is to beef up his legal team and his lawyers are telling him to try to dial back the criticism of the special counsel. The challenge for Democrats is some of the newer members uh, who were the most anti-Trump members who come from safe progressive districts Would like to go to impeachment right away. The more mature members are saying, "Let's have some oversight hearings. Let's look into some of these issues, but let's stop the I word, impeachment. Let's investigate. That's a good I word. Democrats like investigate. They don't. A lot of them don't like impeach right now because they think it's putting the cart in front of the horse. They think let's give Bob Mueller three, four, five, six more months if he needs them. Let's let the Southern District of New York turn from Michael Cohen to the Trump Organization. Let's see what the feds can develop, especially since the feds are all appointed." By Trump appointee, mm-hmm. the Southern District of New York yeah. the U.S. Attorney is a Republican appointee. Robert Mueller was appointed by Trump's Deputy Attorney General. So most Democrats want to be patient, but there's resist. You know, the, there's the more aggressive liberals are saying, "Let's get them."
1: Are you surprised at all? We talked to Bob Woodward a couple of minutes ago about a comment that uh, uh, Orrin Hatch, outgoing senator, obviously about to be replaced by Mitt Romney, uh, a comment he made to your colleague Manu Raju, uh, saying, "Quote: I don't care about the sentencing memos on uh, on Friday." Are you surprised that there's been such little concern voiced by Senate Republicans over, again, the the, the sentencing memo that talks about the direction of felonious activities by paying hush money was not even Mueller. It was a a U.S. attorney uh, in Donald Trump's own Justice Department. Are you surprised there's been so little voice of concern at all from the Republicans in the Senate?
11: Um, Historically, you could make the case that you would be surprised if you've watched the last couple of years. Um, not so much because of the fear factor. Republicans fear the president. Now Senator Hatch is retiring. He has nothing to be afraid of uh, unless he's looking for some help in his retirement from the White House. I would say this, and I think Bob Woodward just gave really good advice for all journalists and even for all citizens. Uh, don't try to be shrinks and don't try to think this. Don't try to, you know, put pieces together before we have the facts. But here's what, what, what most Republicans are saying publicly. Uh, go back and compare, for example, when Hillary Clinton's email server was under investigation or when Bill Clinton was going through the Ken Starr investigation. Uh, for the Republicans who were around back in those days. They were much quicker to rush to judgment, weren't they? Uh, And so that's just the public record. You can look at the public record and say President Trump is getting a pass from his party now. Some Democrats gave Bill Clinton a pass back in the day. Uh, So uh, the the other thing I would say is this, Jim and Jared. Uh, Publicly, Republicans are holding their breath and saying, you know what? We think all of this stuff is happening in a blur The landscape could be very, very different two weeks from now, certainly two months from now. And so if you talk to them privately, they think this presidency is in peril. They do not hide from that fact, uh, that the president is in peril. His family business is in peril. He is personally in peril. And they don't know where this is going, and they're trying to bide their time, essentially. Uh, Why comment on every single development? Now, if you're a citizen, you could say, wait a minute, the president's named in a document that says he committed felonies. Shouldn't the Republicans be saying, I'm concerned about that? Uh, but welcome to the world of politics today.
2: What are we hearing about how the president has been reacting over the last few days? Not, not to keep repeating uh, the, the conversation we just had, but Bob Woodward also had that great conversation about how the president has been dealt with past uh, scenarios where he just is consumed with rage wandering between offices in the White House. Uh, and we hear that he is worried about impeachment.
11: He is very worried, uh, and he's also worried about, uh, more so, I'm told, in conversation with friends, the impeachment thing. The president, you know, uh, the political dynamics are still somewhat, sometimes the president is still learning, and I don't mean that critically. He's new to politics. He's only been in Washington for two years, and it's like, okay, now the Democrats have this power. Uh, He did not have aggressive oversight from Republicans for two years. Now he's about to be boomed hit with a two-by-four with aggressive oversight, whether it's this Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, the campaign finance stuff, environmental regulations, business regulations. uh, The Democrats are going to look at everything, immigration policy. Uh, So, yes, he's he's increasingly getting briefed by people saying, Mr. President, the world is about to change in dramatic ways. And he got a taste of that today with Nancy Pelosi sitting right there in the Oval Office with him. Uh, On the other front, I'm told in conversation with friends, he's increasingly worried that his son, Don Jr., is in legal jeopardy Mm -hmm. and that the Trump Organization... his family business, which he takes very, very personally. And that's why rage is a good word. Incredibly, Just read his Twitter feed. You can see the anger in the tweets.
1: Well, you know, speaking of Bob Wilbur again, he uh, surprisingly to me said he, I'm paraphrasing, but I think I'm accurate, and Jared, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't think it was preposterous to uh, uh, suggest that there could come a point for the reasons you just mentioned, John King, that uh, Donald Trump would decide to fire Bob Mueller. I assume the Horse was out of the proverbial barn or whatever tired phrase you want to use. Is that the sense in Washington that Mueller is still at risk even this late in the game?
11: I think, the, you know, the Bob's point would be, and I think I would characterize what I've seen in the past, I didn't hear the entire interview with you guys, is that, you know, there are, if, if you follow Trump, you would be a fool to take anything off the table. Um, he is different. He at times is erratic. Uh, he does things outside the box. He does things counter to the legal and political advice he gets from seasoned veterans because he trusts his gut. And as he would say, you people told me this during the campaign. You told me I was going to lose. You told me not to say Muslim ban. You told me not to say build a wall. I'm president. You're not. Um, and so you can't rule anything out. He has been told by Republicans that if he takes that step... It would be a game changer in terms of, you mentioned just a minute ago, why do Republicans shrug and say, you know, I don't care or it's not a big deal or let the facts develop when it comes to these court fights. If he were to fire Robert Mueller, that would change the game on Capitol Hill and his own party without a doubt.
1: You know, by the way, when you mentioned that line, uh, uh, I think I saw this on CNN, is that same line was part of, but with a smile on his face, was part of James Baker's tribute. To his uh, best buddy, uh, George H. W. Bush, who, when they were having a dispute, I hope I get this right john you 'll correct me if i 'm wrong when they 're having a dispute about policy, uh, Bush would turn President Bush would turn to james Baker and said if you 're so smart, how come i 'm President of the United <laughs> States and you 're not which I thought was yeah. was actually pretty great so John, is this yeah, did, uh, tongue in cheek uh, of course does this does this whole fear, concern, whatever CNN is reporting that uh, the president is experiencing because of the potential for impeachment or here. Does that factor into the dumping of Kelly and the decision about who is to succeed him? Because it seems to me that part of what that man or woman would help the president maneuver, assuming he would accept help, is some pretty trying times once the Democrats start having hearings in the House, or House of Representatives, no?
11: Without a doubt, it goes into who the replacement is. Uh, Can you connect the dots of that to Kelly? Uh, These two guys wore each other out, and they wore their welcome with each other out to the point where our Caitlin Collins, the great young reporter at the Mm. White House, says they're barely talking to each other anymore. Uh, So looking forward, though, if you were Donald Trump, and if you were anybody and you had a crisis, and you knew the crisis was intensifying, and part of it was this legal quagmire uh, of Robert Mueller in the Southern District of New York, part of it was the related political dynamics of a new aggressive Democratic oversight in the House, um, you want to bring in, it makes sense to bring in somebody, A, who's more political. My big question is, is you bring in someone who is, B, more experienced? Uh, if, the, if you look at David Bossey, his veteran campaign, deputy campaign yeah. manager, sure, he's been around Washington a long time, but he's a puncher. Michael Dukakis knows this from the Willie Horton days and all the way back to those days. He's a puncher, but he's not a strategist in the sense that he's not a legal mind. Mark Meadows, the congressman from uh, North Freedom Carolina. On the list. yeah freedom caucus guy um is that is that does that give you the depth that you need uh, the president should make his own choice it would be smart to pick somebody you trust at this moment because you are going to be in a bit of a bunker and under a siege mentality um uh, but it, without a doubt responding to these crises including the legal crises uh, is a huge part of who you pick to be your right-hand man
1: so who is what's the handicapping on who's uh, left now that this nick ayers has uh pulled himself out of the running
11: I've seen it all over the place. Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, Mm -hmm. is there. He would be a pick, and since he knows Washington, is respected on Capitol Hill, even Democrats who disagree with him on policy like him as a person. Um, My understanding is he has made clear he would prefer to be Commerce Secretary and take some other job if there's an opening administration. This is part of the problem. A lot of people don't want this job. A lot of good, talented people, I know some outside people with deep Washington experience uh, who've had occasional feelers from the White House would be interested in being either Chief of Staff or Deputy Chief of Staff, and they say no um, because they they view this as the presidency under siege. It used to be a great thing for your resume. Um, there's a huge question now as to whether it would actually hurt you. Uh, number And on top of it, unless you're independently wealthy, you're probably going to have to pay a lot of legal fees. If you're in there helping the president through this That's legal amazing. quagmire, quag, quag, quagmire um, you're probably going to go back to the Clinton impeachment days. A lot of those young people who worked in that White House took on a ton of legal fees. Do you want to do that right now? Plus, the president will probably, every time he disagrees with you, and guess what? You and Jared disagree with each other every now and then. I know you and Marjorie disagree with each other every now and then. I disagree with the people I work with every now and then. But in good faith, I don't go on Twitter and say they're idiots. Um, you know, you, he, his, the, last, the last two people to serve as White House chief of staff have left as diminished figures. Uh, And and they're both good people and good public servants. You can disagree with them if you want, but they're good people and good public service. And the president has diminished the people who work for him and who work for him 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Would you want the job?
1: Well, I haven't been offered, but the answer is if I were to be offered, I think the answer is probably not. We're talking to John King from CNN.
2: Yeah, I think I'd offer a hard pass on that, too. But let's talk about the other Jared, uh, Jared Kushner, and this extraordinary piece that was in the New York Times over the weekend about his relationship with Saudi Arabia. And as the the intensity is growing around the Saudi royal family, namely the crown prince and their role in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and then we understand that Jared Kushner all along, even as... As this is traced straight back to the royal family, has been pushing his support of the Saudi royals.
11: And it's a striking piece and a well-documented piece. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. I'm glad you brought it up. In the sense that, look, you can understand if you have a relationship with a strategic ally who is critical to the Middle East writ large, critical to the confrontation with Iran. Uh, maybe you still keep in touch with that person if you have a back channel and a credibility. You have a level of credibility with this person. I can understand keeping in touch with him, but but that none of that contact involves, look, we're going to have to crack down with new sanctions. Look, your story doesn't add up. You're going to have to do a better job telling the truth here and giving us the facts. That's the piece that seems to be missing from the Jared Kushner side of these conversations. If that were there... Uh, Sorry, you're going to have to take sanctions. Sorry, the relationship is going to have a setback. Yes, we can work on, you know, Iran and other issues, but we're going to have to punish you on these other issues. If that part were there, you would say, good, you have a relationship, an adult relationship where they're airing out differences and talking about disagreements and then figuring out ways to also work on the critical areas where we need to work together. But if you read that piece, you don't see that. You see Jared Kushner apparently giving the Crown Prince political advice about how to survive this, not how to be accountable about this. And again, I'll go back, I'm going to sound like a broken record, When the House Democrats have subpoena power, Jared Kushner is going to be in a witness chair in the House Foreign Affairs Committee and probably having to claim some sort of executive privilege because they are going to want to know about those conversations.
1: We're talking to John King. Hey, John, you've mentioned a couple of times the uh, Pelosi-Schumer-Trump gathering today. What's the likely outcome on the same topic that arises every time there are these 11th hour moments, the infamous border wall, which I assume is not just the traditional Democratic slash versus Trump issue, but I assume matters even more to Nancy Pelosi as she's gathered, trying to gather the votes of uh, new and I think it's fair to say more radical young members whose vote she needs on January 3rd. What's the likely outcome there?
11: Well, if you're scoring this today, uh, it's more likely we're going to have a government shutdown if you're scoring this today, Nancy Pelosi just helped herself. She stood up to the president, sitting in the president's house, sitting in the president's office on television. She went toe-to-toe with the president and came out. The president, essentially just, you know, Schumer and Pelosi uh, baited him into saying, he said, the president said, and I'm quoting him, I would be proud to shut down the government over border security. They walked right out of the White House and said, great, we're going to have a Trump shutdown. Now, we'll see when we talk a week from now whether this changes. Uh, But the president wants this money. The Democrats are telling him, you're not getting all this money. And the Democrats think right now they have the upper hand in these negotiations. And so uh, I I think, again, if you're scoring it today, uh, subject to change, the likelihood of a government shutdown is higher now than it was when you woke up this morning.
1: So, John, uh, if I were to say to you, I thought of you (laughs) Sunday at about, I don't know, 350, uh, would you be able to figure out why I thought of you? It wasn't because of your brilliant analysis and uh, analysis of polling data. Do you have any idea what it might have been?
11: I would have been a little quicker to Gronk gronk and maybe knock that guy out of bounds. Um, You know, uh, and I'm not quick. Were you Uh, watching the whole thing? Oh, I watched the whole thing, and I could tell you at the end of the first quarter, my older son, my oldest son, both my sons are with me, Uh and my older son can tell you at the end of the first quarter, I said, "This does not look good. This does not feel good." Uh, Typical Miami curse, man. That was that was the most horrible, humiliating. Heinous game of football I've watched in a very long
1: time. game. Have you ever seen anything like the final play? I mean, you're a big time sports fan. For those who don't know, have you ever seen anything even close to that?
11: No, especially not by a team with a history of being well coached uh, Uh and uh, playing the game, playing the game right. That was not well coached, and that was not playing the game right. But that was just the exclamation point. I mean, missing an extra point and a field goal. Brady taking that sack at the half, not going for a touchdown at the end there. If they they had a first and goal and they just kicked the field goal, if they'd gotten a touchdown at the end there, they could have watched the guy run the whole kickoff back and it wouldn't have mattered. It was just pathetic.
1: I guess you are watching, then, that's the case. John, it's great to talk to you, as always. Thanks so much for your time, John King. Take care, guys. My sympathies.
2: John King joins us every week. He's CNN's chief national
1: correspondent
2: and the anchor of Inside Politics, which which you can catch weekdays at noon and Sunday mornings at 8. Up next, we're opening the lines and asking you, are you ready for Boston's plastic bag ban? I am. (laughs) Me too. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from our studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie, and I'm Jim Browdy. We're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Remember when the future was plastics? Now Boston is working to make plastics the past. As I'm sure you know, well, you should know, the Boston Plastic Bag Ban goes into effect this Friday. We're opening the lines asking you, are you ready? This ordinance applies only to checkout bags, but seeing that's where we use them the most... It's going to be a big change, as much as I care about the environment. I have to say these bags are good for two things, picking up dog waste, as you all know, and for giving us that great cinematic moment in American beauty. Other than that, I am ready to bring my own bag. Are you? The number is 877-301-8970. What is your plastic bag shopping strategy going to be? Do you wish this ban went further by also applying to newspaper bags, which does not, produce bags, dry cleaner bags, or do you say this is better than nothing? I'd say it's a little late in coming, but I'm glad it has come. And the number is 877-301-8970. Well, I shop here. You live here. You're fine with this, I assume, right? And I'm in some?
2: I'm completely fine. You know, it's funny it, you mentioned dog waste. But thinking of dogs, I feel like I trained myself like a dog quite a while ago that I would always have the 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 canvas bags in my car and if I went into the supermarket or wherever and I forgot them I would make myself go back <laughs> to the car to get them so I would not Ooh, use plastic bags so I just trained myself but the, I think the bags are so inexpensive now the, the reusable bags you can get everywhere uh, That it shouldn't be, I don't think make too much difference in the city As long as, it'll just take a little effort to train yourself and it'll be so fantastic not to be seeing plastic bags wrapped around all the branches and the trees around the city anymore
1: well especially since we were talking to Shirley Young from the Globe what an hour and a half ago about all the plastic that's in the oceans and the harbor, all this sort of stuff. You know, Marty Walsh had some concerns he raised about, you know, if you end up buying a paper bag, don't bring a cloth bag. There's a fee, five cents, ten cents, et cetera. He's worried about poor people. The answer is bring a cloth bag. Go buy a cloth bag and wash it. I mean, that deals with that. And John Hurst, who I, I like a lot, who's head of the retail association, this ridiculous know, argument about mm-hmm. how tourists or some cockamamie things. Tourists are going to be disadvantaged, I guess, so then buy a paper bag for 10 cents and carry your stuff around in a paper bag. The bottom line is this really matters. All of us, are t- except for the president, are talking about climate change. It's good for the environment, not to mention, if Marjorie was here, you know what she'd say? If I saw one more plastic bag in a tree, yeah, that, yeah. it would put me over the edge, and I am totally with her on this. So it's long overdue. We should be celebrating Fridays a day. Get Get your cloth bags or deal with it in some fashion. 877-301-8970. What did take so long, bro I don't even know. Why, well, why did it take so long?
2: I don't know, because we're not exactly groundbreaking. This has been done in a number of stu- uh, communities throughout Massachusetts and around the country. So it's just time. The world is changing. We need to change with it. And as you say, you just... Well, as I said, you train yourself for it'll it be five or ten cents to get a bag, and then you'll just keep carrying it around with you.
1: And by the way, if somebody, we would love, since this obviously we agree on this, if there's somebody there who thinks this is a horrible idea. Oh, actually, there is somebody already. We'll get the. Well, actually, let's get them right away. But he's calling from Florida. Who the hell cares what you think, Eric? <laughs> Eric calling from Florida. <laughs> Welcome to Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling, Eric. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I,
5: I was calling him. I'm I'm actually calling um I just recently moved down here. Yep. And I am for it. I'm actually for oh, it. Um, s- but,
1: oh. you're for it. I thought you were yeah. against it. My apologies. No,
5: I'm actually for it and but the lifestyle change is much more difficult than I ever anticipated. Why? And well, I yesterday I went to Subway. I bought three sandwiches for those people that were at my house. Uh-huh. And I asked them right away, no plastic bags, please. And Everybody – it's almost like I'm being laughed at as I walk out the door because I forgot to bring my own bag, but I have three sandwiches. I'm juggling them with chips and, and drinks, and I'm, and I'm like, well, I'm trying to do good by the environment, but it's that much more difficult. It's, it's an actual lifestyle change. Um, yeah, but how long does it
1: take – wait, wait, wait. I hear it, but how long does it take to get acclimated to the – life? I mean – You make a few mistakes. You have to carry your Subway sandwiches in your arms for a week or something. And then after that, it becomes integrated into your modus operandi. Does it not? It does. It it does,
5: and and it can. It's, It's definitely a habitual change that needs to be made. But the uphill task is getting everybody else to buy into it. Down here, living next to the ocean, it's disgusting to see how many plastic bags I see on a daily basis. Yeah. and i think the change was great in cambridge i think it's going to be great in boston um but it it has to be it has to be implemented um across the country I, you know just, I you know, think it, it's an important
1: change since you're calling from florida and obviously governor scott is now senator Alex scott i'm assuming based on his record on climate change he wants you to get nine plastic bags <laughs> when you go to subway is that a safe <laughs> assumption
5: i think that is a safe assumption eric I, thanks, thanks for, for calling
1: on really appreciate it. by the way for those who don't know that's not a joke rick scott was well, sort of a joke a bad one. Rick Scott is the guy who told his cabinet members they could not use the term climate change. I think he excised the term also from official state documents. I mean, the guy's a totally denier living in a state that is bordered on all but the northern side by water. It's pathetic. I mean, it's really pathetic. Well, you just
2: mentioned the nine bags, which makes you think. It drives me crazy, too, to be standing in line and, and you see somebody who's puts all the groceries in the plastic bag, and then they scoop up about four of them at the same time. And so it's not just one bag you're using, it's four, and and then you go to the bad place like I do, and you think it's going to end up in the ocean, it's going to end up in the tree, we'll see it all around us.
1: My position on people who grab the extra plastic bag is cuff them and book (laughs) them. That's what I've always believed. Jason in Cambridge, and actually the first caller reminded me, we did it a long time ago in Cambridge. Jason, welcome to the show. How are you?
14: I'm great, thanks. I was just... Packing my reused bags to go to the store this segment came on um, i've been i've been doing it for years and years so it's it's like not a new thing. Uh, I reuse those plastic produce bags coffee i reuse stuff till it wears out and um, one of the things that drives... oh it's not only the consumers it's the people at the work just to bag it stuff it drives me nuts to see somebody take a gallon of milk or detergent that already has a handle and put it in a double plastic bag i i refrain i refrain from saying anything i'm with Anyways.
1: you i'm with you so getting back for a second to what i think it was eric was his name from florida how hard was the were you living in cambridge when we, i don't even remember when we got rid of them were you living in cambridge then, or no or uh jason
14: Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm not Eric from Florida. I'm, I know, no, but Jason. Eric from okay, Florida
1: no I know you are. But Eric from Florida mentioned the transition. I was asking, did you live through the transition in Cambridge, or did you get to oh, Cambridge? Oh yeah, a- I was
14: already doing it. I I was doing it for years and years. Oh, fine.
1: So you don't have to deal with the Jason. I come
14: I come from a family who was like, you know, my folks were raised in depression. Depression never threw anything out. I love that. And I just try to not even get the stuff. The plastic in the first place. I'd rather put produce in my pockets and carry it under my arm.
1: (laughs) Jason, I'd like to see that. Thank you for the call. Do you ever see the thing on PBS? I can't remember what the show is. It was a couple of years ago. Marjorie and I have talked about it. Where there's one couple, I think they're in Wisconsin, somewhere in the Midwest, who have one garbage bag a year. What? because of composting and all those other wonderful environmental things to do, one garbage bag a year. What do you think of that?
2: I can't even comprehend how that's possible. I didn't
1: think you could. I'll explain it to you later. Debbie <laughs> and Franklin, you're on with Jared Bone and me, Jim Browdy. How are you? Hello. Hello.
15: I love this this uh, topic. Good. I have been first-time caller,
1: long-time listener. Thank you. Thank you.
15: Um, so I have a um, an idea. A friend of mine told me it. So it's those people that say, Oh, I brought my bags, but I left them in the car.
8: Mm-hmm.
15: So what charred. you tell them is you you tell them, put all of those groceries back in that cart Ooh. and bring it out back out to your car and put them in the bag. I bet they never forget their bags again.
1: Debbie, that's beautiful. <laughs> Have you ever done that, Debbie? Nope.
15: No. I, you know what? I, I've been doing it so long that I get out of my car and I immediately open the back of my car. It's like... What am I here for? Oh, I'm here for my bags.
1: Beautiful And thing. I
15: also mm-hmm. I'm also have mesh bags that I ordered from Amazon for my produce. I don't use plastics. I, I don't,
1: don't
2: either. I'm, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it's great. And by the way, the beauty of what you're doing is when you order from Amazon, they're made by workers who are locked into the warehouses overnight <laughs> when they're... To make sure they finish. And they
2: arrive in a box that's filled with plastic. Exactly. All that
1: Jim, do you use the vegetable
2: bags in the in the supermarket? I actually
1: do, but I have to say, uh, Debbie, thank you for the call. Uh, in the spirit of candor, in case people have been listening to the show for years... I did have a problem with the transition, like Eric was describing before, because the bags get really dirty. And I know what the solution is. You should wash the bags in the whatever you call it, the washing machine. <laughs> whatever whatever, whatever call it's it, yeah. called, the washing machine. I forgot what it was called for a second. But I did have a transitional uh, I did have a transitional. But now we,
2: we need to move you off the bags for the vegetables, too. Do, do lemons really need to be in a bag? No, they can roll around the cart. You just rinse them when you get home.
1: What do you mean roll around the cart? You take them individually out of the cart and put them in your car seat? No, I put them in the cart because I don't put them in a bag when i go to the supermarket. But the cart doesn't go into your car, does it? No. Great.
2: Right, you're not following me. I'm saying I don't use the little plastic bags that you can use for vegetables right. in the supermarket. I refuse to do that, too. So you just put the lemons in the cart. Yeah. And then you... How do you get them home? You put them in the bag with all the rest of the groceries. Oh, I got it. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I got that. It is sorry. awfully late
1: in the day, isn't I, it? <laughs> I got the concept now. Thank you very much. Uh, for. I was going to thank you for the call, but you didn't call. You're no, right I here. did right Where here. do you want to go next, Jared?
2: Uh, let's go to Jackie and Brewster. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Jackie.
16: Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Um, so I'm, I'm in favor of the ban in general, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the towns here on the Cape have already instituted that the larger grocery stores um, started giving out the thicker weight plastic bags and charging five or ten cents. So customers started to complain about that. So in response, the stores were giving them away for free. So now instead of giving away many flimsy thin plastic bags, they're giving away many thick plastic bags. So I think in some cases, it's actually making the problem worse.
1: That's a very good point, by the way. I don't know enough about the, the technology or the whatever, the content of that thicker bag. Is that a problem, Jared? You're a big-time environmentalist. That's a problem, well, right?
2: I, I, yeah. I, I'm not sure, completely sure what she's talking about. But yeah. Well, like,
1: for example, I'll give you an example. Star Market in, uh, uh, gives away, uh, I think, in Somerville where there's not a ban, they give, I go to Star Market on Beacon Street in Somerville, they give away the thick plastic bag. They give it away. It's free. So the point that Jackie's making, instead of a little flimsy little plastic bag, which was what we're talking about in Boston, what they've done in Brewster or wherever Jackie is calling about, they give you a thicker one in its place, which doesn't solve the problem. Oh, the the people aren't reusing. Yeah. They're
2: just going home and throw that out. Well, how about
1: that? Are they reusing it, Jackie?
16: You know, I, I have a stack of them because sometimes I do forget my, my bags. I try to reuse them, but they're only they're only marginally thicker. So I guess they 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 reach the level of thickness where it doesn't. It qualifies as a reusable bag, but it's hmm. not thick enough that people will use it will last. You know, I got 30, it. 40 times. So they, they tend to just treat them the same way they treated the thinner ones. And so as a result, now you just have thicker plastic bags. Well,
1: let me ask my environmental advisor what he thinks <laughs> about that. What do you think, uh, Jared Bone? Jackie, thank you for the call. What's your reaction to that?
2: I, I think it's easy to mm. figure out what kind of bags work for you. Just have them, have a system, and then you don't have to ever ask for bags. I have the heavier canvas bag mm-hmm. when I'm bring home milk or something heavier, and I have a little bag that folds up into a pouch so I can just put it in my pocket so I don't have to carry a bag around the store.
1: Why don't you ask me, by the way, how many uh, of those uh, canvas pouches I have in my car? Jim,
2: how many canvas pouches do you have in your car? I'd say
1: about 30. And why don't you (laughs) ask me what is the logo on most of those and what color are they?
2: Oh uh might it be can I answer this instead? You may
1: answer it, yes. Might
2: it be a WGBH logo Yes, and they are orange, orange
1: and, blue? and w How do you get them, by the way? the way? We used to of the library. Do the have to make a pledge for those kind of how do of um, get them
2: um You just have to walk by the room where the are stored. And, and take stored and side
1: a the By the way, they're great, and they really last. Do you use those things?
2: I have a couple of those. I have a bag that I got covering the Republican National Convention from CNN that I still Whoa. use. What year was that? what was
1: year that? 15 years was that? something years that. That's unbelievable. Republicans that. good bags. Bags. Mike in a car, you're <laughs> next do, on, actually. You're next actually, it was on, a CNN bag. Whatever. You're next on Boston Public Radio with Jared Bone and me, Jim Bradley. What's up, Mike?
4: Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. And to you. Um, I'm actually not the concerned shopper about the bags. I'm no. the recipient of the bags. My wife does the shopping, but I, I drive into town every day, yeah. mm-hmm. and I have an old Grand Marquis, and it collects multiple bags and melt onto my exhaust system on a daily basis. Huh. And when I get out of the car I'm like is that me and I get into the car and all I see is molded plastic all over my exhaust system. So I can't wait to
1: get rid of these things. It's a very sad story. Mike, thank you for sharing. Now, one of our co- thank you, Mike. One of our coworkers types in the following. Let me see if this describes you. Last time I bought salmon, I just put it in my coat pocket and put a bunch of lemons in the other no bag. What do you think of that?
2: Well, I think I know who that colleague is. Who now. was it? You? And now I can understand why that I had that smell when I was <laughs> walking through the office. No. I, well, you have to see you have to train yourself. You do. Otherwise that's the that's the consequence. You have to put salmon in your pocket.
1: Okay, we only have time for one more quick one. And Amy, it's you in a car. Hi, Amy, quickly please. Hello.
2: Hey, I
6: want to share um two things. Please. One um is this you know the you know the shop um Roach Brothers? Sure, you know, Sudbury Farm. Sure. So if you go in there, and I've been doing this for years, and you bring your own bag, they ask if you want to um, donate your bag rebate and to charity. Ooh. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but think about that. Every single time you go in, like I donate my bag rebate, and all that money, all day long, month after month, goes to charity. Second thing, go and get the blue cooler that they sell at Trader Joe's. That thing is <laughs> fantastic. It lasts forever.
1: Wait, and you just put the stuff you buy in the cooler and take it home in the cooler?
6: Oh my god, yeah. I oh my god, that's great. I worked at the Whole Foods with that. It's wonderful. I look like I'm carrying a suitcase, but it is fantastic.
1: <laughs> now have you ever be this. Amy, before you go, have you ever tried putting salmon in your pocket and lemon in the other pocket? Have you ever tried that?
15: No, like maybe a Sub in a
1: pocket. Yeah, sub in a pocket is good. Amy, thank you for your call and your suggestion about Trader Joe. That's another possibility. So Friday is when the plastic bag ban goes into effect. That's all I have to say.
2: No more bags and trees. We're
1: happy. No more to... bags and trees. Tree bags are the worst and the most depressing. Yep. Jared, we're done for another day. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you. Should we talk about Sing That Thing for a second? Oh, please do, actually. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I just have a quick thing to tell people. Uh, you know, as you know, I'm one of the coaches slash judges on Sing That Thing. And for any groups, musical groups, who are interested in participating, oh. the registration ends on December 16th. So you have a few more days to register. And you can come from all over New England to participate in the show. Um, it doesn't guarantee He was slot on the show when you register, Um, but just go to singthatthing.wgbh.org. We're changing things up a little bit this year. Uh, There is an honorarium for the finalists in the grand finale, so there is... um something to help offset the expenses of participating in the show, and you should know that we have hundreds of thousands of viewers in the Boston area. We're in uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and Connecticut, it's a so fabulous it's show. lots of exposure, but just remember if you want to have your group participate in the show, uh, you have to do that. Send in your inf- information by December 16th. Now,
1: do the coaches this year still rate things either great or I've seen worse or whatever the <laughs> rating system is? Well, we is? haven't had
2: our production okay, meeting whatever. yet, but I think that's probably the case.
1: So, uh, if you're interested, send in. It's a terrific show, and even better to Participate in. Well, thank
2: you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tune in tomorrow for Juliet Kayam, Alex Beam, and Harvard historian Nancy Kane. Our crew is Chelsea Mers, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tresky, Arjun Singh. Our engineer is John LaClaw Parker. Our on site engineer is Dave Goldstein. Special thanks today to the folks at the Newsfeed Cafe. So, what's on Greater Boston tonight?
1: Well, Nicole Russo interned at the White House with Monica Lewinsky. She recently wrote a piece in the Globe apologizing to Lewinsky for how she perceived what had happened during that time. We're going to look at Bill Clinton through the Me Too lens with Nicole. Writer Jen Dedrick and another writer, Globe columnist, uh, Joan Vinocchi. Christina Quinn, fabulous reporter, has got a great uh, piece about how food waste is not being wasted but used in some schools. It's creative and important, some other things as uh, well. Uh, At 7 o'clock tonight, I am Jim Browdy. I'm Jared Bowen. Uh, See you tomorrow. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye.